You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 416. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff. Today's show is recorded on the 12th and 14th of March, 2020. Today's episode, new information on the three-year-old crash of a cargo plane in Central Asia. And a freighter overruns the runway in Saudi Arabia and hits trucks. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, passing more gas. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 416 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast, and I'm Captain Jeff, your host, as I mentioned. I'm an airline pilot, a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in the United States, and uh, it's an aviation podcast. We talk about aviation news and cover your feedback as much as we can every week. And here to help me with all of that from our lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. I kind of like the first version of that, but uh, <laughs> I guess we're, we're not going with that. Yeah, I, know. I don't know what Behind you're talking about. Stuff I'm giving away here. <laughs> um, yeah, glad to be here for uh, this evening's show. Glad I could make it today. Um, wasn't sure what my schedule was really going to be like this week, but uh, it worked out. So looking forward to a good one. Very good. I'm looking forward to it as well. High hopes, right? Always. <laughs> also, joining us from his mobile recording studio in Miami, Florida, massive watch wearer, gym rat, dream lifter driver, and lover of all things Boeing, it's Miami Rick. <laughs> massive watch wearer, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who, who wrote that? <laughs> it was not my Two idea. Guesses. All I can say is it wasn't my idea. <laughs> But we're waiting for, for you to give us the official version. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll work on that. But I, I, yeah, I, 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 can, I have an idea or two came up with that. <laughs> Hello. Anyway, guys, how are you guys doing? I'm happy to be back. Um, and uh, yeah, it was you know kind of a long day for me. Back to the uh, back to the sim, learning to get well, not learning, get reacquainted with the 767. So uh, you know, it's it was a good day. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Glad yeah. to see you here. Been a while. Yeah, so you, you're getting reacquainted with the 767, and we're all re- getting reacquainted with you, Rick. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. But works both ways. That's right. So I'm going to leave this music running because we also have a special guest in the mobile studio that I'm in in Wichita. And let's see, we're going to say that you're a mechanical engineer, because you really are, uh, based here in the air capital, Wichita, Kansas. And you're the pilot of Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, right? Yep. 
Excellent. This is Nick Camacho. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. All right. That's it, huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a... Well, it's a man of few words. A man of few words. But here we go. You obviously have a wonderful economy with words. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so uh, (laughs) we're going to talk more with Nick and find out much, much more than he's given us so far about what he does and has been doing this last year. But in the meantime, I think we should first start with heading over here to the news. Stand by for news. All right. The first item in the folder is this, a accident, Gazpromavia AN-74 near the North Pole on the 4th of April, 2015, hard landing. Oh, that's been a while since they've, uh, they had this uh, accident. Um, it was on a polar expedition performing a flight from Murmansk, Russia to Barneo Ice Base in the North Pole, made a hard landing at the Barneo Ice Base, which is 89 degrees latitude. That's pretty darn close to the 90-degree line, I guess. Causing substantial structural damage to the main gear, the aircraft came to a stop and settled on its tail due to the gear damage. The occupants disembarked safely via ladders. Now, the update here uh, that just came in, this is on the Aviation Herald on the, uh, what day? It was like just recently here. Um, March 8th. March 8th. Thank you. Um, Yeah, now I see it. Um, Came to the attention of the Aviation Herald on March 8th, 2020. Attempts to repair the structural damage of the landing gear were underway on April 22nd, 2015. So not long after the incident or accident, when winds in excess of 30 meters per second, which is uh, more than 58 knots, caused the aircraft to tip onto its nose destroying the nose gear in addition to the right main gear collapse received on the 4th of April during the hard landing. The aircraft rolled onto its right side and received additional damage beyond repair. Repair attempts were aborted. On the 24th of April 2015, the aircraft owner, Char Incorporated Limited, I've never seen that before, an incorporation and a limited um, partnership, filed an insurance claim which was disputed by the insurer. Anyway, here's the part that I want to talk about. Um, the accident aircraft drifted with the ice flow to the West. So it was drifting off to the West <laughs> as it the sun sets. Yes. Yeah, heading West. <laughs> yeah, literally when in the night <laughs> between July 26th and July 27th in 2015, the ice flow cracked and the aircraft sank into the waters of the Arctic sea. <laughs> Oh. Is, is there a 13 at all in that airplane registration? <laughs> I, I did not see. Good yeah. Lord. Yeah. Not a lot of good luck there. There's a, there's a picture and we'll include this in the, in the show notes and you can see it, I guess before, I guess this is before the wind, high winds um, mangled the nose gear. Cause the nose gear looks pretty good in this picture. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, uh, and of course, obviously before it sank into the water, <laughs> to the bottom of the Arctic. Yeah. yeah. So apparently they had to abort the investigation. <laughs> the evidence is not there anymore. Wow. Yeah. That is, yeah, not, not good. And, and the, and the, and the meters per second on the, on the, uh, yeah. on the wind there, that, that brings me back. So they do that in, uh, in, in Russia still and in China. So it's kind of interesting how you, uh, you get your ATIS. And wind speed meters per second, and, and when you so, first start, what? yeah, yeah, you first start doing it, you're like, oh, what? And then it's just that a just, lot of winder, not a lot it, of winder. Exactly, you know, you go, you know, five meters per second. Exactly, they just double it. You know, so ten knots, just about so it. Okay, to work. So that's just the rule of thumb: just double the thing, and it's yeah, darn just close. double it, okay. double it. And then the interesting part is when they actually have you fly in meters, which they do that uh, in uh, not not so much Russia anymore. Actually, not Russia at all. Uh, they do that in China, so you'll enter Chinese airspace and you fly around with this with this conversion table, you know. So they'll assign you a uh, they assign you a uh, a flight level in meters, and you use that little chart to you know translate that into feet, and you actually fly around with an odd altitude in your mode control panel, or because you don't have the option there. to switch that to meters. No, anyway, you, you can yeah. you can you can you uh, can. There's an option to display meters in the altimeter. Okay. But you can't select meters um, on your autopilot system, gotcha. so you have to fly with that little table around. But uh, yeah. We, yeah, but this is one unlucky one, one unlucky airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's when it's your time, it's your time. I was just going to say we dealt with that too when we were over in Europe with the C forty seven because they were using some meters, but they also did all their altitudes in or their uh, altimeter settings in millibars. In a couple of the countries over there, yeah, was, that's 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 more usual. They do millibars. Now, you want something to really cook your bagel? Maybe, um, maybe for you, Rick. They'll do. They'll oftentimes they'll do something called uh, QFE. You know, so they'll, yep. they'll they'll reference they'll reference uh, uh, altimeter setting to the actual uh, elevation of the station. Yep. Exactly. So when you land, your altimeter will read zero. And that's kind of, you know, kind of kind of tricky sometimes because, you know, we're, we're also used to flying with reference to uh, mm-hmm. to uh, Q&H, you know, mm-hmm. or local local altimeter settings. So by the time you land, your your altimeter shows um, uh, mean sea level uh, altitude. So but QFE, I've never I've never personally done it, but it's something that we that, that we train on and know about in case we ever get it. I might be coming in below the 50% accuracy level at this point. So the words that are to follow may or may not be true. But I think I recall many years ago, uh, American Airlines was one of the major U.S. legacy carriers here in the U.S. that used QFE for for some time before they converted to the way everybody else does it here in the U.S. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Now, somebody out there, if you're uh, an an old – old pilot from American airlines, uh, let us know whether or not that is true or not. Cause we need yeah, to I'd, keep it above the 50% as much as we can. I'd, I'd be interested. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that's really all we have to say so about it, that. I, I thought, just do want to say that's an interesting looking aircraft there as well. Does Antonov make anything that's not like interesting? <laughs> no, in quotes? they don't make uh, the, everything they make anything is interesting looking. Yes, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And we're going to talk about uh, Antonov uh, in the feedback on this show. Hopefully, we'll get to it. Um, another um, kind of unusual Antonov, the 225 Mira um, or Mira. Yeah. The dream. The dream. And uh, let's see. Uh, what was I going to say here? 
Uh, yeah, so I think Steph is referring to the fact that the it's a twin engine, twin jet engine aircraft. The um, jets are mounted on the high wing, and it almost looks like uh, we were trying to de- decide, or we were wondering what the term was called, blown, yeah, it's, blown uh, flaps like upper, or something it's, like uh, that. Upper Rick probably knows this. Upper surface blown, upper surface blown. Fill in something. The yeah. <laughs> You're referring to the, uh, the upper, upper upper surface blown um, uh, lifting body. I think that's what it's called. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure it, on that, but it, but but that's basically what it does, right? The fact that the the fact that the exhaust of the engine is on the upper surface of the wing, it actually increases um, lift, you know, just by just by the sheer velocity of that exhaust yeah. air going. It's, you know, it's over basically the top like uh, using it's the same concept as vortex generators, right? You're having you have more excited air going over the top of the airflow. Exactly. Exactly right. I mean, although although you know vortex generators, they they excite the air by creating right. a vortex, and this is just blowing air over the top of the wing. But it has the same exact effect. Yeah. I mean, these Russians are crafty. <laughs> you, Russians are what? Crafty. <laughs> crafty. Okay, I'm sorry. You're, you cut out right at the moment where the consonants came in, and I could have sworn you said something different. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, we're, great. We're two, we're, we're, we're two for two now. Now the Kremlin's going to be after us. <laughs> okay. I think it best for us to move on if we if we value our lives. Uh, yes. Moving on to uh, item B. Uh, was a crash. This happened in 2017, January 16th to be exact. A My Cargo Boeing 747-400 at Bishkek uh, in Kazakhstan, I believe. Is that where the Bishkek airport is, uh, Rick? Do you Ka- remember? Kazakhstan, yeah. Kazakhstan. Okay. Um, I remember when this happened. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, not that long ago, actually. And uh, on March 3rd of this month, uh, well, of this year, uh, the MAK released their final report concluding the probable causes of the accident were uh, the missing control of the crew over the aircraft position in relation to the glide slope during the automatic approach conducted at night in weather conditions suitable for ICAO Category 2 landing and as a result the measures to perform a go-around not taken in due time with the aircraft having a significant deviation from the established approach chart which led to the controlled flight impact with terrain uh, CFIT or CFIT we like to say at the distance of about 930 meters beyond the end of the active runway. And you, if you want to convert that to feet, I think you multiply by five and divide by nine and add 32. Oh, wait, no, that's temperature. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so that's about, what, 3,000 feet beyond the uh, end of the active runway? That's, uh, that's a long ways. Yep. Yeah. Um, ways. Contributing factors were most probably, <laughs> probably, again, this is a uh, Russian report, and we love the Russians. I think this was translated from yes, the Russian? Translation, so. Yeah. yeah. The insufficient pre-flight briefing of the flight crew members for the flight to Manas Aerodrome, Bishkek, regarding the approach charts. Did I say that right, Rick? Manas? 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 Uh, Manas, yeah. I'd say Manas. Okay. Uh, As well as the non-optimal decisions taken by the crew when choosing the aircraft descent parameters, which led to the arrival at the the established approach chart reference point at a considerably higher flight altitude. The lack that of the crew—that is key, right there. Yeah, that's probably the arriving, biggest. Arriving higher, yeah. The lack of the crew's effective measures to decrease the aircraft vertical position and its arrival at the established approach chart reference point, while the crew members were aware of the actual aircraft position being higher than required by the established chart. So, in other words, uh, they probably zoomed it down in a very high rate uh, to try to 
get back on the appropriate glide path to the runway, I'm assuming. I don't know. Um, anyway, they have a, a several other items here that they've listed in their, in their final report. But I do know that, um, Rick, you had some opinions about this and uh, some comments to be made regarding this particular accident. Yeah, I was, I was, uh, and the reason why I mentioned that the fact that they arrived uh, high on the approach path was critical here is because the, um, well, we have to get a little bit into a, how a glide slope works. So we, you know, we're talking about the fact that they were, they were shooting an ILS approach and an instrument landing system approach. And the two main components of an ILS, you have your, your, uh, your localizer, which gives you that lateral guidance. Then you have the glide slope, which gives you the vertical guidance, right? Uh, that glide slope antenna usually sits in the first, uh, 1500 to 3000 feet of the runway and that's going to give you a uh, about a three degree glide path you know angle of descent down from your um uh glide slope intercept altitude on the approach chart down to the runway right uh and basically the way a glide slope works is um it it uh it sends out two overlapping lobes right one at 150 hertz and then the one on top of it at 90 hertz and where these lobes overlap that's called a null zone right so uh basically a a a glide slope receiver on the airplane the way it knows whether to fly up or fly down to keep you on that glide slope is uh based on whether it's uh, receiving a predominantly a 150 hertz signal or a 90 hertz signal Right. So where those signals null out, like I said, where those kind of even out there, where there's no predominance of one versus the other, that the aircraft interprets as being on a glide slope. The problem with these glide slopes is that there are also called there's also, uh, you know, glide slopes known as 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 false glide slopes. And and these glide slopes happen um, about every about every six degrees. So if you look at it, you have uh, you have a three degree glide slope that you know from the ground to the optimum angle. Uh, three degrees on top of that, you get to six at six degrees. You have no signal. And, and the reason get, being is because, so if you're thinking about those false glide slopes, you got, mm-hmm. then you have 150 and 90 as opposed to the other way around. So you actually get a flag there that there's no signal. Correct. Ex- exactly. Right. And so, so basically the, basically the, 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 uh, the, you're at the end of the scale for mm-hmm. those particular lobes. So, the receiver is not receiving anything, what, you know, but it's nothing whatsoever. And so that happens at that six degree mark. So you, you, you end that glide slope there, then you're going to get another, uh, another glide slope at nine degrees. So you're going to get one lobe at 90, one lobe at 150, a null zone at nine degrees. Right. And then the airplane, all it knows is that it's, it's, it's entered a null zone. So it's going to interpret that as being on glide slope. And the problem with being high on the approach and not intercepting your, your, your proper glide slope at the published altitude is that you can, in fact, intercept one of these false glide slopes. Now, the airplane doesn't know any better. They were going to conduct a category two approach, which is, you know, usually leads to an auto land. Um, since the glide slope, you know, quote unquote, Everything checked out as far as what needed to be there for the autopilot to shoot that that automatic approach. All the systems, you know, engaged properly. All the fail safes, uh, you know, did what they had to do, and 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 the system worked the way it had to. So the airplane, you know, it just it just operated normally, albeit on a nine degree glide slope. Now the only way to know that you're on a nine degree glide slope is by taking a look at your your uh, your rate of descent your closure rate to the ground because 
usually on a three degree glide, if you take your ground speed and multiply it times five, that'll give you, you know, what your rate of descent is. So take into account uh, 150 uh, knots over the ground times five. It's about 750, 800 feet a minute, right? So that's mm -hmm. on a three degree glide. If you do that on a 9 degree glide, all of a sudden you're not descending at 800 feet a minute, you're descending at 12, 13, 1400 feet a minute. But you're showing like you're on glide slope. So you're going what the hell is going on? I mean the, the thing you know? that might come to mind at that point for people that have been flying ILS approaches for a long time is that I must have one heck of a tailwind because we have a very high rate of descent. But there are exactly ways to right. determine whether or not you have a big mm -hmm. tailwind or not and that should have been something that was noticed by the crew, right? Exactly right. And here's where another fail safe comes when it comes to ILSs. Along that lateral track towards the runway, you have what are called um, uh, marker beacons, right? And these marker beacons are going to, as I said, be placed along the lateral track to the runway. There's usually three of them. You have an outer, a middle, and an inner, right? And the way we cross check what your altitude should be in relationship to your to to the runway is by crossing these marker beacons at a published altitude. Right. So by the time you cross that beacon, you should be at a certain altitude. You cross check that with your with your altimeter and those altitudes should match. And if they don't, there's something going on there. Now, towards the end of the uh, the, uh, the this, this accident flight, the autopilot was unable to maintain that uh, that that descent rate. And so it, it, it noticed based on its rate of descent that, yes, I'm on glide slope, but this rate of descent is too high. And so it kicked itself off. So the the, the vertical mode, the, the, the mode that's tracking the glide slope, went into what's called uh, an inertial mode. So it is no longer tracking a glide slope. It is now tracking what it believes should be a three-degree glide. And the way the pilots know this is by the automatic flight director system drawing a line through the glide slope mode, letting the pilot know that this is no longer an active autopilot mode. Um, and all the signs were there. But as we all know, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, they got too low, and by the time it was, you know, they should have gone around. They didn't, and I can tell you from experience, ha um, having an, a seven forty seven go around at low altitude, all that mass, that energy is not something that happens instantly. And so, we all know, you know, what happened afterwards, which is which is sad. Mm. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, they. Crashed and there was some kind of a village, I think, at the end of that runway that and they killed a bunch of people on the ground, I think. Yeah. And I tell you, I mean, that's 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 the exact type of flights I used to do, you know, just mm -hmm. taking off from Hong Kong, uh, doing a, a tech stop. Uh, our, ours, we flew into Bishkek a couple of times. I, I did, I think, twice or three times. But our usual stopover on the way to uh, either Istanbul or Amsterdam or Liege was usually Almaty and uh, and um in uh, old Kazakhstan as well. Um, but it's the same thing. You know, you, you, you fly for a couple of hours and you land, you hope to refuel, take back off and, you know, so, and, and you going. never get there. So it's, mm. it's, um, I've, I've so, been there and it, it, it's pretty close to home. So when you, uh, when the auto flight system reverts to this non-active glide slope mode, for, what did you call that mode again? Inertial mode. Okay, so it's an inertial mode. So it's 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 basically it's it's inertial. Some some autopilot flight director systems call it inertial. Other call it ballistic. So it's just basically holding a trajectory. Okay. Uh, instead of a track and something. So the autopilot so is still the, controlling the airplane at that point. In oh the yeah. I mean, the auto, okay. It's the just basically the rate of descent or the the 
three degrees that it's supposed to be following. Is that what you're? Yes. Kind so, of? Yeah, exactly. So it's, 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 but this is, this, this rate of descent is not being controlled by a, an outside signal. Right. Mm-hmm. But by what the system thinks it should be. And that's why the mode and the autopilot and on your primary flight display, the mode, the glide slope mode no longer says, well, it says GS for glide slope, but now it has a line across it. Gotcha. Letting the pilot know that the mode is degraded and it's not actually tracking a glide slope. So it's kind of sort of like a flag, like, hey, it, get, it I'm trying to get your you attention. Yeah. And, and that's and that's a tricky thing. It can't be a flag right. because it is tracking a glide slope. Okay. You know, so the it's, only way to really call that attention, uh, to call, call your attention is by drawing that line across. Gotcha. So, okay. Um, when you were mentioning um, altitudes at certain points laterally, uh, I always think of uh, when I brief the ILS approach, I always talk about the glide slope intercept uh, altitude. And if that is different than the point at which you fly over the outer marker, uh, it's called the glide slope check altitude, or at least that's what I call it. Um, and that's always um, published right on the, um, the, the profile view of the uh, mm-hmm. approach plate here. And in this case, I just pulled up the ILS to runway one right, which is the approach that uh, we flew coming in today to Wichita. And uh, the glide slope intercept is 2,700. And then just a little bit further down, as you start down the glide slope, when you cross over, uh, he called it pick, I think, or something like that, but it looks like piche to me, P-I-C-H-E, mm. um, 2,615. So um, it, if you if you're on the glide slope and you're crossing over that marker and you see twenty six fifteen on your altimeter, you know you're on a good glide slope. Hey, exactly. Not only that, but uh, as as part of your of your um, in your audio select panel, you can actually select to turn marker beacons on. So you turn that marker beacon on and you and you turn the volume up just enough so you can hear it. So cause it, it will it will emit a very specific sound. You know letting you know that you're about to pass or fly over it. And then, so when it gets the loudest, you look down and you're supposed to cross check uh, your altitude then. And then the other thing, especially when you're flying um, category two, category three operations, you know, low visibility, auto land type operations, never, ever, ever intercept a glide slope from above because this can happen. So the idea yeah. here is to get to your, you know, mm-hmm. published, uh, either your published uh, uh, glide slope intercept altitude or the lowest altitude that uh, that uh, ATC gives you and always intercept from below, always, because, you know, this mm-hmm. this will keep you from from uh, running mm-hmm. into stuff like this. So speaking of sounds, um, Captain Al would like to know on Boeing's, do you get an oral alert for such scenarios, like where you have the, um, not the flag, but the bar through the the glide slope that you're talking oh, yeah. about. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's there's uh there's four levels of um, I guess alerts on on Boeing's, and specifically the 747 has got four types. So you got uh, warning, which is the the highest um, uh, priority or hierarchy of them. So, say for example, an autopilot disconnects. You know, that's the, that's a ve- it's a very very distinctive whaler. Then you get cautions, which is something like this, you know, or 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 your auto throttle disconnecting, or or something that's not as 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 um, as important as an autopilot disconnecting, you know. So you'll get you'll get a beeper, and you get an advisory also, which is also a uh, um, kind of um, something that's you know calling your attention, but doesn't have a a specific sound to it. And then you get a memo. Which is something like you know seatbelts on or no smoking on type of stuff. But the ones that are associated with with actual you know sounds are warnings and cautions. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. One more thing before um, we move on. Um, Tim Needham has set us straight that Bishkek is in Kyrgyzstan. Not- Kyrgyzstan. There we go. Ah, yeah. not Kazakhstan. Ah, Almaty is in Kazakhstan. Okay, okay there we go. Here we go. Thank you, Tim. We've just reached the fifty percent level. We're back. Uh-huh. 
Back. We got Thanks, it. Ben. Yes. All right. That's why we count on our APG community so much. Love it. Yeah. All right. Anything else to say before we move on to the next item in the news folder? No, I think that mm-hmm. one's uh, that one's pretty set. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, item C, veteran B747-200, an older version of the 74 at Abuja. How did I do? Did I do that right? Abuja? Abuja. 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 Dang it. All right. <laughs> Below the 50% level. Um, overran, displaced runway end, and collided with trucks. Uh, another overrun on a, with a 747. This occurred uh, pretty recently. Uh, well, no, I take that back. No, we have a new yeah. new update on it. it. It happened in 2013, before this one uh, that we just talked about. Uh, but we have an update uh, on Monday, March 9th. Um, so let's see. Let me just tell you again, remind you what happened here. A veteran airlines Boeing 747-200 freighter on behalf of Saudi Arabian Airlines Registration Echo Kilo 74798, performing flight 6814 from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, to Abuja, Nigeria. Landed, <laughs> landed on Abuja's runway 04 at about 2200 local time, night, dark, but overrun or overran the displaced runway end. I, I had to correct that. Collided with a number of building machines and trucks, veered right off the runway, came to a stop with all gear off the runway, and the building equipment wedged under its right-hand wing and engine. The equipment was totaled. The aircraft received substantial damage to the right-hand wing and engines number three and four, as well as even more substantial damage to the left-hand wing with engine number two, the inboard left engine, detached from the engine pylon and engine one damaged. There are traces of a brief fire where the number two engine broke off the engine pylon, severing supply lines. And there were no injuries, according to the Nigeria Transport Ministry, uh, or fatalities. And the occurrence has not been a crash other than Nigerian media reported. Now, I'm not sure I understand what that sentence means. Um, do you, anybody, any ideas there? They're yeah. calling it just an incident. An incident. Uh, I oh. mean, it sounds like a crash. Yeah, it does. Yeah, the thing, the thing there's, another, there's a lot of, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, on March 9th, the, uh, Nigeria's AIB accident investigation board released an interim statement. Uh, <laughs> this happened in when? 2013? 2013. 2013. Yeah. Okay. I'm working on those interim updates. <laughs> Gosh. We're working towards that final report. <laughs> okay. They're even worse than we are, I think. Uh, reporting the draft final report has been completed and has been sent out for comments. Um, during the landing roll, Tower called the aircraft to hold short, hold short. The aircraft turned to the right to avoid the displaced threshold uh, via exit A3. The aircraft veered off to the left of the exit and impacted some construction equipment parked on the side of the runway. The aircraft came to a final stop parallel and to the right of runway four on a grass verge with the fuselage and nose wheel between the construction equipment. Six crew members evacuated the aircraft unhurt. And uh, there were um, no TAMs at the time that uh, indicated that there were some men and equipment and construction equipment as such um, on the runway or near the runway. And that uh, the, uh, let's see, uh, trying to find the actual NOTAM that, uh, well, maybe not. But then we have the NOTAMs in here if you want to read them. <laughs> Anything <laughs> significant there? I don't, I'm not sure. The reason why I'm kind of hesitant here, I don't know if these NOTAMs were from after the accident or before. It says, it says current NOTAMs. Oh, 
from 2013. Okay. I don't know. What does that mean? I don't um, know. I think that was after the fact, actually. Yeah. Um, September of 2013. And this happened uh, when? Yes, again? I think it's all the NOTAMs that they created after this occurred. Okay. Like. Anyway, uh, no METARs are available. The local weather station reported uh, at 1900 local time, visibility above 10 kilometers, 31 degrees Celsius, dew point 21 with winds from the south southwest at six knots, and uh, anyway, so they have some pictures here of the um, of the uh, airplane and the uh, building equipment. You know, like heavy, what would you call these heavy equipment um, machines? Window. Yeah. Let so me tell you. About, let me before we go on there. Let me tell you about no METARs available when you fly into Africa. Okay. <laughs> That's standard. Oh, Is that a common occurrence? So, uh, so I tell you. Um, flying from, I don't know what's, what's, we would do quite a bit. We do, we do Amsterdam to, uh, Nairobi sometimes down in Kenya or Lagos in Nigeria, any of these places, um, port hardcore as well. But anyway, it's very uneventful until you get to about, uh, I don't know, uh, a hundred miles South of the Cairo FIR, you know, over Egypt, if you're entering through that side. And then after that, it is better really to fly at night for the cruise portion of it for the simple reason that a lot of these people down there, they don't operate transponders <laughs> and they lie about where they are. Good. So Helpful things for situational Oh yeah, awareness. E- exactly right. And it, it only gets trickier as you're coming into land because as we see here, you know, Eight times out of ten, a lot of these airports, not 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 so much the international ones. Nairobi is quite all right. Lagos is fine, but you get to the smaller airports, you know, Port Harcourt. I think I, you know, oh, <laughs> some of these airports. We've heard some stories uh, from Nick about that. Oh man! Mm-hmm. Oh, I tell you, and <laughs> Lagos and, uh, in particular. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you you don't have you you might have an you might have a METAR, but it's you know hours old. And um, so you, what we used to do is we used to come in. Oftentimes, when the visibility was fine, you know, at pattern altitude, and kind of overfly low the pass. thing, do and, and literally do a low pass. Not only because we want to see what the heck the wind is doing, see what the runway all, looks but, like, but also to make sure that there's no equipment on the runway yeah. because of stuff exactly like this. You know, mm-hmm. so it's uh, if 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 you really want to get good at thinking twelve steps ahead fly heavy in Africa because it's, it, it really puts things in perspective. Like you come back to the States and you fly stateside and you know, everything is given to you and everything is there and every approach is an ILS and everything is, you know, you know, you have tons of alternates all the way around you. I, I'll tell you, that's one of the things that I'm not going to miss, you know, having to kind of figure out what to do on your, on your own. <laughs> You're really on your own. <laughs> like, you really are. So yeah. I, I, I feel for these guys. Captain Allen, our uh, chat room here, Says, uh, sounds like Africa. I once went around because of wind shear. On my second approach, ATC said, quote, caution, wind shear in progress. <laughs> uh, Captain Al was, was like, yeah, no, no S word. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's scary. Uh, anyway. Very much so. So, um, yeah, just thought Good that stuff. was an interesting thing. But you got to look at the uh, show notes and see the pictures of the uh, this heavy duty oh, yeah. equipment and yeah. uh, the damage it did to the uh, the jet and trucks and things. And but you know what? At, at least it was on landing and not on takeoff. Like, like that. Mm. Uh, well, that's like true. That, like at Singapore, uh, Singapore seven four, which uh, I mm. think it was. That was the first hull loss of a Dash four hundred. Wow, that was that was bad. Yeah, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, 
Uh, we have some other news items, but we're going to continue. We're going to cover those on Saturday. This is a two-part show, by the way, and we're recording the first part on a Thursday evening, and then Saturday morning we'll cover part two. So with that, I think that we are going to go ahead and get to the part of the show which I really enjoy, and that's our chance to um, get to know each other. Oh, you know what we should, we should do, though, before we do that? Um Something that's occurring right now as we speak, we're in, we're living it uh, when we're recording this show in mm. 2020 in um, early March. And that is this little pesky virus, this coronavirus. I feel like this is going to just be part of our getting to know you at this point. Yeah, like, what have you been up to? Getting to Everything know the I'm virus. trying to do is being canceled. Why? Yeah. Because coronavirus. Yeah, so. things are really kind of crazy all of a sudden. Um, all kinds of things being canceled. I don't know what's specifically is going on in other parts of the world but here in the u.s uh, they've decided basically to shut down everything <laughs> like what did the uh, ncaa finally just say every We're, everything is canceled march madness mm. is canceled um nba games are canceled nhl's well they're all suspended for the rest of the season wow. um all kinds of stuff so maybe we should back up just a little bit so okay. in case you're either a listening to this well after the fact if you're one of those folks who like joins you know 200 episodes from now and you have APG syndrome and you have to come back and listen to all these episodes, we'll just remind you what was happening in uh, early 2020. Um, so late 2019, early 2020, um, everyone listening now is well familiar with coronavirus, this novel virus that has emerged out of uh, Wuhan area of China um, at this point has basically spread to most corners of the globe. Um, that's for the flat earthers. So your map is square you know, what's, it, what's a globe <laughs> <laughs> nice. this, this thing over here oh yeah all, all that accurate depiction of, yeah. from of our edge planets. to edge <laughs> from edge to edge um and it's it's definitely not something to take lightly you know at first it was a little unclear we were getting some pretty um serious reports out of china in terms of the measures they were having to take in order to try to contain it and treat people and the seriousness of the um, symptoms and the um, fatality rate, the mortality rate with the virus was exceptionally high. Um, so what this virus does, it basically causes, um, for some folks, very severe respiratory problems um, to the point where you can have respiratory failure. You may need to be um, uh, intubated on a ventilator, um, artificial breathing for you if you have severe um, response or reaction to the virus. Now, those who are young typically have less of a severe response. Um, in fact, for most children, folks under the age of 10, in part because a lot of other viruses um, that we get when we're kids are caused by coronaviruses, the same family of virus. Um, there's some thought that there's some shared immunity or at least weak immunity. So if you've had a recent illness with a coronavirus that is more common, less severe, perhaps that helps you out if you're exposed to this coronavirus. For those of us who are adults, haven't been exposed to a coronavirus or haven't had a um an illness with the coronavirus for a long time, it's more likely that you're going to have a more severe illness. And that goes up exponentially if you are above the age of 60. For every like 10 years that it goes up, it really increases. Um, sorry, Jeff. This yeah, <laughs> might, be, might be one of my last shows. So yeah. just <laughs> sorry. Appreciate it. Or if you have other health problems, so diabetes, heart disease, um, if you're immunocompromised, all kinds of things. If you have previous respiratory illnesses, uh, history of that type of thing going on. Um, and it's relatively, you know, in on the spectrum of things, you look at different types of illnesses. So something like measles is highly contagious. Um, Chickenpox is highly contagious. 
Um, you look at other things that are very, so you have that on one axis. And then on the other axis, you have things that are very lethal. So something like um, Ebola virus, um, which is very lethal, but not very contagious. This kind of falls somewhere into that middle category where it's problematic in terms of its how contagious it is and in terms of how severe it can be. Um, and because no one's ever had it before, everyone's susceptible to getting it potentially if you come in contact with it and, and getting symptoms. So uh, most recently, um, you know, if you go beyond China, beyond Asia, so South Korea's had a lot of cases, they've done a lot of testing. Other places, Singapore, Hong Kong have done a lot to contain this because they kind of learned some some lessons from SARS and other things, swine flu, things like that back a decade ago, um, had more plans in place. But then as the virus kind of made its way around the world into Europe, Italy in particular right now um, has had quite a bit of an issue with it. Um, basically, what's happening is the people who are ill and severely ill are overwhelming the um, the healthcare systems. So there's not enough beds for these folks who are sick. You know, um, if you're severely ill, if you need to be intubated on a ventilator, you may not have space in a hospital to get that treatment that you need. So uh, the concern really now is to try to socially isolate. You don't want to come in contact with folks who may be sick. Um, we know that this spreads very easily in large gatherings, in large groups of people. So um, that's why you're seeing all these cancellations. You're seeing cancellations of big sporting events. You're seeing cancellations of um, conferences. People are being asked to work from home, all kinds of stuff that's going on. So. That kind of brings us up to where we are today. So I have a question regarding that. Uh, the mm -hmm. last thing you just said, Steph. So the sporting events and such uh, is is the primary vehicle for um, transferring the disease from one to another, like sneezing, coughing. Yes. So good question. The so this is basically droplet transmission. So if you if someone sneezes or coughs and they are ill with this virus, they can spread it to you. You basically need to be within relatively close proximity to someone, generally within six feet. Um, but there is some concern that perhaps it can be a little bit more of an airborne disease in certain circumstances. Um, so yeah, it's basically trying to stay, keep your distance from folks who might be sick. And then, you know, basic hygiene stuff. So wash your hands. We know that Regular soap, um, alcohol-based uh, gel sanitizers that are greater than 60% alcohol will kill this virus. Um, and then avoid touching your face and, and things like that. So I have a question, too. So mm -hmm. what, what, what costs is one, one, one strand and mutate into this other lethal strand? Like so that's a good question. Um, you know, there's I've looked at a couple of things in terms of where this virus may have originated from. Um, there's some thought that perhaps it was, let me get back to some of my, I do have some notes on this actually. Um, I'm not going to be able to find where it came, where I had that. But basically, you know, is there a question that it came from some other species? Was there a reservoir somewhere out there, like in bats or something, and it just changed enough that it was finally able to be something that can infect humans as opposed to just some other species? That's a possibility. We don't actually know. So, or did it come from a different coronavirus that somehow mutated? So, wow, yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Because, mm -hmm. because I tell you, I mean, a lot of these, I can see how how this would originate in some of these places because um, having been to some of these, you know, food markets and and especially in inland China of all places, the the further inland you go the more, I guess, the less touristy it gets, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you see things that you wouldn't otherwise see in the most, in the more, you know, westernized parts of, uh, of China. Sure. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's uh, certainly around the world, different customs, different levels of, um, 
sanitary practices, hygiene practices. There's different culinary practices, you know, in terms of things that might be being consumed, um, the way that food is handled, um, all kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So just my two cents on coronavirus so far. But uh, no, it's concerning. It's definitely, um, you know, as we know more and more about it, I think we become rightfully more and more concerned about it. And um, yeah, it's, it's at least for those of us here in the United States, it is definitely here. There is definitely ongoing active community spread and transmission of it. So um, not a reason to panic necessarily, but use good sense, use, use caution. And it's having a huge effect on aviation and the, uh, especially the airline industry. Yeah, but I guess, we'd be yeah. kind of remiss if we didn't talk about that a little bit, I suppose, because yeah. mm-hmm. there's yeah. been all kinds of, um, if you want to jump into that part of it. Well, um, Acme International flights have been dramatically reduced. And even some of the domestic flying, uh, was reading a menu, a menu. I was reading a menu the other day, but <laughs> it has nothing to do with this. Um, a memo regarding uh, cutting down capacity in the domestic system as well. I think the figure was something close to 15%. I think it's anywhere between seven and a half and 15%, depending on the airline. Um, there were right. different figures from different airlines. Uh, for for mm-hmm. me uh, and Dana, uh, for Dana and I, I should say, no, for Dana and me, uh, we have to um, bid for our schedules uh, month to month. And so the bid for bidding period for next month just closed yesterday and a memo came out saying that there would be reduced flying, but they're not going to uh, touch anything as far as the trips as they are already crafted and set uh, until after the awards are given and then they're going to start making adjustments. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how that's going to affect Dana and me uh, in particular. And, uh, uh, yeah, that's about all I have to say about that. No, and it's it's interesting to kind of contrast that with with the with the freight world a little bit because while you know while the while passenger carriers are obviously getting hit hard because of this you know coronavirus uh, on the freight side of things, actually things are looking up. Um, the you know the, the price per kilo has shot up dramatically in anticipation of this whole thing you know passing, which is hopefully going to happen soon. And then uh, the uh, the uh, supply chains uh, being reestablished. Um, my phone just keeps going off with you know overtime trips of all sorts. You know for mm-hmm. both the seven forty seven and seven sixty seven. Um, and you can't do them, can you? Uh, Wait, I mean, no, exactly. Right I can't. <laughs> and I'm and I'm stuck in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but but I'm saying it's interesting how 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 resilient really the 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 freight industry is. Um, mm-hmm. Where you know if 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 uh, things still need to get from A to B, and so you know it um, it. But but I know it's it's going to pass and and um, it's it's just it's just what it is. You know, it's just, I think yeah. it's a self direction, and mm-hmm. I think it's a cycle, and I think we'll be back to normal here hopefully soon. Yeah, we have to, you know, psychologically, emotionally, have to. Uh, be as positive as, as we can in this. And I think that uh, you would agree, Steph, that, you know, if you are ill, um, you know, that being having a, a good positive mindset does have some effect in weathering these kind of things as well, right? Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, well, I don't think panic is a particularly good mindset to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being rightfully concerned and taking appropriate precautions is a good mindset to have. Um, 
uh, you know, we see a lot of crazy things going on in terms of people panic buying all kinds of stuff. I don't understand the toilet paper particularly, um, even if you're going to be self quarantined at home for. Oh, for remind two me weeks. to steal I, the, uh, the toilet, toilet paper toilet. here in the. Uh, <laughs> I room. just am yeah. not yeah. sure what you're going to do with all that toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, don't, I don't. I don't get that either. I don't understand that to be honest. Um, you know, hand sanitizer that's important, but you know, like reasonable amounts. Um, I think if you do. So here's the other tricky thing too. Um, up until probably this week, it's been fairly difficult to get tested for coronavirus, COVID-19 here in the States. Um, that is changing. But if you are sick and you suspect that it may, and if it's respiratory stuff in particular, if you have a cough, if you're having trouble breathing, if you have a fever, those are the three main symptoms of it. Um, do what you can to get yourself tested and and don't hesitate to self-isolate or self uh, quarantine. Don't go into work if you're sick. Don't spread it to other people because you yourself might not have a particularly severe um, illness from it, but you could easily spread it to someone who is immune compromised, who's older, who's in a high risk population for having a very severe illness. Hey, Dr. Steph, what was the cause yeah. of the testing issues? Was that because they had to make new testing kits well, for this so since it's, it's a new virus? Yeah, the you know, there's been testing out there, and certainly other countries have done a very good job of um, um, just it, pretty immediately as soon as they had a test available, producing lots and lots of tests and being able to test for it. Um, I'm not involved in that side of of healthcare or medicine, but my understanding that's that is that that's not particularly difficult to do. It had more to do with certifying the tests here and making sure that we were. Uh, testing for the correct things, you know, um, and, and having some of those um, safety measures in place is my understanding of it as far as I know. Um, having all of that coming through the CDC and then having other lab companies, commercial lab companies like LabCorp and Quest being able to verify that their tests were appropriate to use. So as far as I know, that's that's what it was. Okay. Well, I'm sure this won't, will not be the last time that we talk about this uh, virus and its effects on everything. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. let's go on to something more pleasant. Why not? Huh? Um, training, Rick, how's it been going for you? Training is good. Good. So today we did, uh, it was the, um, oh, so to break up simulator training, you, you, you first go through uh, a flight training device. You know, it, it used to be back in the day that you would, you know, go to the actual simulator and do what's called a fixed space uh, simulator uh, sessions, which is basically just using the, the 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 flight deck as a procedures trainer. You know, the simulator is a procedures trainer to kind of you know get an idea where the where the switches, the buttons are. You know, the 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 I guess the geography of the whole thing kind of gets situated, and then start working out procedures and flows because there's um, throughout every portion of the flight um, there are certain things that need to be done in certain in a certain order um to you know to, you know to, to to have the flight you know, work out the way it should and so there's you know there's a pre-flight flow there's a, a a before taxi flow before takeoff flow and after takeoff flow a descent flow approach flow all that stuff so uh the first uh, couple of sessions you do that uh it, it we no longer do that in a, in a fixed space sim really because of the the uh the demand for simulators right now is so high and the fact that there's Cost. Uh, well, not only that, yeah, cost as well, but it's also the fact that uh, uh, people need to get, you know, uh, current and uh, they, you mm -hmm. know, it, it's not only us using these simulators, even though we own them, uh, it's also other airlines that we rent uh, time on these simulators to. 
And so we'll try to break that up and and use a procedure strainer at the schoolhouse here, and then go through those procedures here. And it, and this procedure strainer is really cool because it's um it's it's basically the flight deck, and I think I posted a picture or two on Twitter there. And the it's and the actual uh, flight deck it's it's comprised of uh, of a set of flat screens, touch screens, you know that uh, you know you can you can actually manipulate and. And, and and move around and stuff. And on the side of each uh, main panel there, you have a smaller, you know, maybe 17-inch uh, panel that uh, breaks down the system. So you can select whatever system you want and see how the system uh, behaves based on your input on the FTD. So, you, you know, we did that for about a week and a half, eight sessions of that. And then now, uh, starting today, we began the the actual full motion simulator part of it. So um, got in and um, did, you know, just just basic air work, um, steep turns, stalls, uh, some uh, some uh, visual traffic patterns there to get uh, reacquainted with the plane. And then for for my uh, for my partner today, it was, just, you know, his first time flying the 767. And it's uh, it's interesting how going from coming from the 747 to the 767 where you sit so much lower, you know, the first landing or two are a little tricky because you're so used to flaring at about you know 60 to 50 feet where the 767 you flare it at 20 you know so you just kind of you kind of have to fight the urge of flaring early because if you do then you find yourself floating down the runway so today was today was all about you know getting reacquainted with the jet and so uh, uh hopefully in the next uh two just under three weeks we, we'll, we'll all be done here but uh throughout the uh, throughout the full motion part we'll run through you know every possible scenario you can think of you know engine failures hydraulic failures electrical failures and uh, we're also training in a, uh, in a in a passenger environment because not only do we operate freighter seven sixes but also passenger seven sixes and um in contrast you know if you compare the passenger and the freight operation passenger operation is a lot more complex because you have a lot you know many more variables that the, the freighters don't have you know mainly 230 people sitting in the back and each one of them is a, is a variable. So, uh, by, uh, by, by incorporating it or, or, or by, by, you know, putting that, that chip in your head from the get go, it, it makes it easier once you, you know, hit the line and have to do these passenger flights, which for me is going to be, you know, a first for, a, you know, it's been a while since I've actually flown passengers. So I'm looking forward to it. Now, are those mostly military charters? Yeah, well, military charters and a lot of sports teams. Although I don't oh, see that happening. Not, yeah. no, that's going to be a little while. <laughs> Take a little while. It's going to be a few but, months. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's mostly it's mostly military uh, military charters. Yeah, for mm-hmm. uh, to the Middle East and then uh, the uh, uh, Southeast Asian and sorts. So cool. Yeah. All righty, um, Steph. How about yeah. you? What's you, what you've been up to? So I had a nice relaxing weekend last weekend. I didn't do much of anything. I got caught up on a lot of sleep. Um, because after my little um, England excursion last week in the middle of the week, I was feeling a little tired uh, at the end of the week. What? You? Um, yeah, I know. Right. Strange. Yeah. Little, little uh, jet lag. Little. Well, no, it wasn't jet lag. It was just more sleep fatigue. deprivation fatigue. Uh, it was more uh, fatigue than anything. So nice. a couple nights of a nice, like I had things on the list to do. And then I was like, nah, I'm just going to catch up on sleep. Cause I thought <laughs> this upcoming weekend was supposed to be another kind of action packed weekend. I'm supposed mm-hmm. to be in New York city this weekend. I'm supposed to be running a half marathon this weekend that has hmm. been canceled. Hmm. Um, 
And we talked a little bit on the last show about doing a meetup with Tanya and Dave and them on Sunday. Um, as of right now, we're still planning on that. Um, but we'll see. It's kind of a fluid situation. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, good chance I'll probably still be in New York City this weekend for the weekend just to see some friends and do some low-key stuff. And um, there won't be a race involved, but I'll probably still do a few miles through Central Park because that's always a great place to go running. And um, we'll see. All right, and as long uh, as I have a flight to take, I think I'll I think I'll be there. Information but, for the community to figure out whether or not it there's is on well, on it Slack? will be on Slack. Okay, yeah, Tanya is in charge. Of that. Tanya says meetup is on so far. All right, mm-hmm. well, fingers crossed. Hopefully, you'll be able to do that and see some folks up there in New York. Yeah, exactly. All right, and that's about it. So otherwise, it's just been been work. It's been kind of hit or miss at work. Um, couple days this week have been kind of slow today was relatively busy um work, doesn't work work work, work, work schedule work work, 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 work. <laughs> exactly um i don't think anyone in the charlotte area is working from home yet because traffic has been just as horrible as usual so we'll see if that changes over the next few weeks or not too the only sane people on earth in charlotte north carolina that's right right they're ignoring yeah. all this stuff yeah i don't know about saying they're just just moving on with their lives like nothing's going on yeah all right um so i mentioned that we have nick camacho here and you recognize his name because uh last year i thought it was like last fall but he said no it was like last spring i went wow this being old really <laughs> it's amazing how quickly time flies what year is this <laughs> right. um so uh, in 2019, last year, um, you told us all about the upcoming um, event of the uh, the organization that you fly with, um, the, Bet- the Betsy's Biscuit Bomber, and it's a, it, a converted DC three to a C forty seven or a- it's a, it's actually a C forty seven. Okay, it is started a- as a C forty seven. Okay. Never went to uh, civilian service. Okay, and uh, when Nick was um, uh, where, where you flew over to the Eastern U S and did some air shows and that kind of thing. Right. And then, uh, you ended up flying. Uh, well, I'll let you t- tell people what, what you did. Yeah. So I, uh, we, the airplane is based in California. I was involved with moving the airplane from California to, uh, Connecticut. And then I kind of hopped off uh, in Connecticut and let, um, uh, some of the other crew fly the airplane over the water. And then, uh, about a week later I flew over to London and, uh, reconnected with the crew in the airplane, uh, did a bunch of flying in Europe for about two and a half weeks. Um, started, uh, at Duxford, uh, flew around England, um, flew in France, uh, flew in Germany. And then, uh, I came back home and, uh, got to do a couple of cool things while I was over there. Uh, I had a couple of goals that I, I managed to hit. And one was to uh, log time in all three countries while I was over there. So I, I did manage to do that. So I've now got C-47 time out of Duxford, out of uh, Cannes in France. And then uh, I flew a leg from Wiesbaden, Germany, uh, over to Schoenhagen, which is in kind of South Berlin. And then the other thing I did was uh, there's a flying flying group in Cambridge called the Cambridge Flyers Group. And uh, that's actually the organization that my dad soloed with uh, when he was learning to fly in 1964 in the... Uh, Air Force, and they still have one of the uh, Tiger Moths that he soloed in. And so uh, while we were out there, me and my brother and him peeled off, and all three of us went and got to fly that airplane. And it was 
I had done the math, I guess, uh, 55 years after he first soloed it at wow. home, back and flew it. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Sounds like it. And then uh, uh, Nick at some point um, met up with you and took some great yep. photos. Yep. Of the- Nick, uh, Captain Nick uh, came down to Duxford uh, and met up with us. And uh, we were going to try to get him up in the airplane with us, but the weather wasn't great. And we were uh, doing a bunch of jump operations there. And so that didn't end up working out, but I uh, did get to chat with him for a while. And uh, he took some pictures and had a lot of fun with him. Yeah, some amazing pictures. Yep. We'll uh, mm-hmm. try to remember to put those in the show notes so you can look at those again. So, Nick, quick question: how do you how do you uh, how do you stay current in that thing? I mean, because obviously it's it's over it's above twelve five, right? Yep. Above twelve thousand five hundred. Yep. So you need a type rating for it. So how does the how does the training work for that? The initial training or in the transition and then the the current. So the the PICs don't have any actual um, uh, paper requirements to go. Like they don't have to do it other than just the regular uh, currency requirements. As a SIC, I have to do a full, the full sixty-one fifty-five requirements. So I have to sit down with our chief pilot and do all the emergency uh, procedures and go through all the ground school and and then do, um, you know, usually we combine that all into, you know, we have a flying season and so we start flying in in April and basically fly through October. And so usually for currency, basically all we're doing is we're just coming out of a maintenance cycle. And, uh, and so then we get everybody together, uh, at the beginning of the year and we'll do basically a day of flying where we get the chief pilot gets everybody together. We do our ground school in the morning and then, uh, we just go up and do hops in the airplane. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, wow. Okay. And then the, and then how do you, the, the initial training, I guess it's, I mean, cause obviously, you know, BC three C 47 is just before the, before before simulators and all that stuff, so you actually have to do it on on the, on the plane, right? Yep. Yeah, and so uh, I uh, my dad has a Luscom, so I, that's what I've been flying a lot. So like you were talking about okay. the flaring issue between a seven forty seven and a seven sixty seven. I was yeah. going from an airplane where I was flaring like five to six feet off the ground uh-huh. to an airplane <laughs> where I was flying flaring like twenty feet to twenty five feet off the ground. Yeah. So yeah. it felt like I put the struts through the wings a couple of times when I first started. <laughs> So we, it's a weird feeling, huh? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like definitely. The, like the, the, the perspective of it, you know, is just, yep. it's just, it's, it's weird. Yeah, I know. Yep. And then, you know, there's just a lot of uh, unique handling characteristics of the airplane, especially going from a smaller airplane, you know, mm. uh, some of our pilots are airline guys, so they mm. don't struggle with the same things that I struggle with. Like the things I struggle with on that airplane are, uh, trying to make sure that I'm not hitting the wingtip on things. Cause the wingtip is mm. 47 feet away from where I'm sitting. Uh, and mm. I'm not used to that. Uh, another thing that's a little weird with the airplane is I'm, you know, uh, it's a tailwheel airplane. It's a, a free castering lockable tailwheel, but with it being a twin engine airplane and a single tail, you don't really have any directional control until you get up to about 20 or 25 miles an hour. So, you know, I'm used to putting the tail up in a tail dragger, uh, fairly mm. early on in the takeoff roll, you have to keep the tail down on this airplane. Otherwise the tail comes up and you really have no directional control as you're that running was, down the that runway. That was going to be my, my next question <laughs> because it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, uh, n- not too long ago, I read a book called uh, uh, Tales from Corrosion Corner, okay. which I, I don't know if you know about it or uh-uh. you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure um, now the folks on the, uh, on, on the chat room know about it. It's basically a, a book that details the, uh, I guess the the transition from old uh, 
problem liners to the early jetliners, um, the freighters here in Miami, you know, and a lot of those early cargo um, uh, freighters, you know, uh, freighter airline operators used, you know, surplus C-47s, yep. DC-3s, and they, and, they, and they really, you know, they really uh, break down the method of, of, of you know, the, the takeoff, the cruise, how it cruises, how it lands, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, you don't have counter rotating propellers. So you Correct. have to deal with, you have to deal with a critical engine, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, it, and, and I've never, you know, I've, I've never flown a, um, uh, a twin prop other than, other than a seminal when I got my, my, my multi-engine rating. Mm-hmm. So I, that's, that's, that's something that I really know nothing about. And I find, you know, absolutely fascinating. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, certainly a unique experience. And, you know, the, the only struggle for us, uh, when I started flying it four or five years ago, um, Mm. it was hard to keep the airplane flying enough and have the funding to keep the airplane flying enough to have everybody really current. But, Mm. uh, as we've kind of grown our organization, uh, we've been able to do a lot better job of, uh, doing the currency flying and, and getting more people typed in the airplane, you know, and then as we start typing people in the airplane, the knowledge base within our pilot group grows and, and we get a lot, everybody right. gets a lot more comfortable in the airplane. Absolutely. Sure. Makes good sense. Yeah. Do you do any flying here in uh, Wichita? Uh, yeah, I do. So uh, my dad has the Lusco. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mentioned. And then I have a beach debonair, which is oh. like an early straight tail bonanza. Yeah. Nice. Um, I bought that to get my instrument rating and uh, got about halfway through my instrument rating. And then I took it apart about two months ago to redo the panel. So before I started my project, it had a, uh, a couple of old, uh, Navcom radios, a, uh, DG with no bug and a regular CDI. So it was like, so stuff that can make 88 style yeah, <laughs> instrumentation. No, it was like 1970s instrumentation. Um, and so we're redoing the panel. We're putting a HSI, a electronic HSI, uh, an EFIS in it, and then a WASP navigator. Oh, nice. So uh, it, it should be a, a pretty nice airplane to fly but, once we're done with it. But since you're doing all that, you had to put your IFR um, instrument rating on hold. Yeah. hold. Yeah. <laughs> but once I, you know, the the problem that we were running into was that uh, the airport that I fly out of only has a RNAV approach or a GPS approach. Ah. So we couldn't really go fly, go practice in any sort of actual because uh, – you know, it'd be difficult to get back in if mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if we had to, or if the ceilings came down or anything. So uh, now I'll be able to actually use the airplane as an instrument airplane. Nice, yep. nice. Very what cool. was the time frame on doing all of that work? Is it pretty quick? Uh, so I uh, I last flew the airplane on uh, January fifteenth, and um, I had my initial goal was to have the airplane flying by March first. And uh, you know, the problem is it's a 60 year old airplane. So as I kept taking things apart, I was like, Oh, I should, I should fix that. That's, that's not right. I'm in here. So I've had a little bit of scope creep, but I'm hoping that in the next uh, two or three weeks, I'll have the airplane back going again. You found a, a, cr- a creep uh, in your, what? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> now what, what is it you just said? A sc- S- scope creep. Scope so like creep. the amount of work that I had intended. Oh, that's the project like, that you're doing as I, as I kept opening the airplane. Gotcha. Up, you got, that's a, that's a, a project management term that you yeah, just used. Yeah, and yeah. I was thinking it had something to do with the airplane and being a mechanic. So you were airplane. joking. You, actually you, you, you know, you know like what actually I thought? scoping and like, looking for- <laughs> I, I, that's what I thought it was. I thought it was like one, like one of those cracks that you have to drill. Yeah. And like go down the scope. I'm not the only one. I hear you. It's 
we're right there, Kevin. No, okay. I, I had that thought initially first too, and then I was like, oh no, 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 he means project. Oh, yeah, the like, scope of the project. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. Great. Um, nice. Well, glad that, uh, yeah, when Nick saw that I was going to be here uh, and there were a couple others as well that uh, just the schedule didn't work out uh, for for us to have a bigger meetup here in Wichita uh, on this layover. But I, I told him initially, you know, as long as uh, it doesn't interfere with um, recording a show and we're not sure when we're going to record a show this week. And then when we found out we were going to do this um, today, I said, why don't we do this? Why don't we grab some lunch and then why don't you come back with me and we'll get caught up with what you've been up to with the uh, Betsy's biscuit bomber and such. And, and uh, you can be a part of the show as well. So glad you did. Hope it's not scaring you too much. <laughs> yeah. Probably never see or hear from him. He, he hasn't run away yet. Again. Yeah. yeah not yet. <laughs> yet. Yes. Keep your eye on him. Night is young. Yeah. He's, he's going to grab my toilet paper and, and run away. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> see you on eBay tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, as far as me, I've uh, just been not a lot between the last show and uh, – Today, uh, Thursday, um, just uh, as everybody knows, I, I do like to do a lot of singing and a couple of more funerals I was singing at uh, at my uh, parish church and uh, always busy on the weekend there as well. And then, uh, you know, editing the show, I had two basically two shows last week and finally got the uh, last uh, regular show published um, Tuesday. So took the day off yesterday, <laughs> sort of. Uh, and uh, here we are again. So. That's that's pretty much it for me. And let's see. So with that, are you, are you guys um, needing to take any kind of a physiological break? Mm, you know, it's probably not a terrible idea. Like, okay. Like a minute. Why don't we do that? And then uh, when we everybody's back, we'll uh, uh, try to knock out a couple of uh, items of feedback, and then we'll call it a day. Sounds good. Perfect. All right. Be right back. Okay. Okay, as soon as she leaves, we can start talking about her. Oh, shoot, she's still here. <laughs> I heard that. I know. <laughs> she doesn't trust me. <laughs> Captain, incoming message. Alrighty, let's start with item number one in the feedback folder. Good morning. I am a new subscriber to your podcast. You guys put on a great show. I was listening to your podcast, welcoming back Miami Rick, and wanted to comment on the Spirit A320 Neo incident. To answer the question about the braking system, normal braking is powered by the green hydraulic system, left engine driven hydraulic pump. We could also run alternate brakes off the yellow hydraulic pump could either be right engine driven pump or electric driven yellow pump. Uh, both of these systems could also be powered by the PTU, the power transfer unit, the one that Rick was talking about that sounds like dogs barking uh, with the other system operating. The primary reason for us running the left engine is to allow the ground crew to start off loading cargo and for normal braking. Fun fact, Hydraulic lines on the front of the wheel assembly are normal brakes, and hydraulic lines on the back of the wheel assembly is alternate braking. Huh. Huh. Learn something new every day. How about that? Reference to November 903 November Kilo, the incident aircraft. The engine was inspected and found to have no damage. Oh. The only thing wow. that they found was a, uh, a scratch on one of the high-pressure turbine blades in the core of the motor. I flew one of the first trips after that aircraft was returned to service, and we had no issues at all. Wow. I don't know why I had the impression that 
it, I think that the article that we had said that it destroyed the engine. Maybe not. It Maybe. looked like it did. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah. it didn't look good. No, no it didn't. I, think, I see you can make that um, assumption. Mm. Well, that's good. Good to hear. Then uh, that 3.4-year-old uh, engine uh, still has a life ahead of it. That's good. It was just a adolescent, really. Um, okay. As At Spirit, we run all of our Airbus in a single-engine taxi without APU. Setwa. That's what that stands for. Um, most of us don't agree with this procedure, but that's what the company wants. It's not uncommon for us to pull into a gate and leave a motor running until we get ground power. Oftentimes, it takes two to five minutes, and we're offloading passengers in the meantime. Okay, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yep, let's see how that happens then. Yeah. Wow. Now, even Acme doesn't really do a lot of the uh, setwa or the single-engine taxi without the ABU. We always like to have at least two sources of electricity. Uh, yeah, yeah. Available. Why, why, why not? Wow, that's 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 crazy. No APU. Yeah. That's the, the interesting thing is that I mean I I don't know I don't know about Airbuses, but on on well I don't think this is really limited to Airbuses, but usually on airplanes when you have a single source of electrical power, um, the electrical system's configured um, and it does what's called load shedding. So some things will be shed because of that lack of uh, extra electrical sources. So mm-hmm. on yeah, so some it's interesting because on I believe the the seven six and the seven four as well, if you have a single electrical source, the utility buses don't work. And with the without the utility buses, you don't have any galley power, you don't have any in flight entertainment, you don't have, you know, a lot of these things. So mm-hmm. I wonder I wonder if uh if uh if these airbuses here are configured differently as far as their uh or maybe or maybe the IFE or this is is is, is fed by some you know lateral bus somewhere or dc bus to, i don't know does but spirit it's, have it's, an ife system uh-huh <laughs> oh, maybe they don't there you go yeah. that could be it jason i have not actually flown with spirit so i, I don't know but i haven't either I know some no, things about spirit and i i would guess maybe they don't have like seat back in flight entertainment which you know you don't need anymore anyway no everything's no. on mm-hmm. you know in your ipad Definitely anyway not. I tell you what. I was just thinking, is it really is it like cost savings to do single engine taxi without the APU? Does the APU it require does. that much more? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is it's just a fuel savings thing? I would assume, right? I, I just yeah. don't know how much fuel savings that actually is for that amount of taxi. I mean, it does. It does add up. APU running. It, it really does yeah. add yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're talking, you're talking, you know, three hundred pounds an hour versus, uh, you know, is it uh, three hundred pounds an hour versus close to a thousand pounds an hour? Mm-hmm. With the other so not it's not a terribly so it's not, I mean it's 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 not insignificant I mean, and, mm-hmm. and, you know I guess it, you know, the, the bean counters you know the bean counters yeah sure and are the are the uh, engines I mean part one twenty one the engines are replaced on condition or, or is there a time cycle for the engines like would there be a I think it's I think it's probably a combination uh, I think depending on the engine man, engine and the engine manufacturer. So yeah, there's a schedule. I don't know exactly what it is, but yeah, there's there's a schedule. But it would make schedule. me. And, 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 hmm? Go ahead. I was gonna say it was gonna make me very. It would make me very nervous to do the single engine taxi without another source of electricity, especially at night. You know, oh, exactly things right. get really dark very fast, <laughs> yeah. and people kind of tend to panic when everything goes dark. Well, exactly right, and so yeah, I think the the and and the engine replacement and uh, and overhaul schedule is different. I for uh, for. 
airplanes that uh, that constantly fly ETOPS routes. So, you know, twin engine airplanes flying long distances versus an airplane like, a, you know, a 747 or an MD-11 where you have, you know, three engines and, you know, ETOPS doesn't really apply to you as far as engine uh, engines are concerned. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, very interesting. Hey, yeah. Jeff. Yes. Pause for a moment. Nick yeah. is trying to join us. Captain oh, Nick. But okay. he needs a new code for StreamYard because he's using a different computer. Nah, tell him uh, he's out of luck. Sorry, Nick. Yeah. Well, in the <laughs> meantime, yeah, while while they try to work that out, uh, let's uh, move on with a uh, second item in the feedback folder. Um, VC10, Ron. Actually, you know what? I'm going to keep this. I'm going to do this one on the Saturday show. So let's skip to... Um, this might be a great time for us to cover the second part of Tanya's uh, audio feedback. And this was oral history excerpts of NASA's Dick Underwood. And we played the first one a couple of shows ago. And here is part two. Everybody ready for that? Ready. All right, ready. Here we go. Then another problem was a lot of the geoscientists around the world wanted photographs of certain areas and you get 50 minutes of daylight and 40 minutes of darkness and they're scheduled in a series of times that they're going to sleep. In those days, astronauts didn't sleep because they're looking at this earth out there. No one had ever seen this magnificent thing before and they look out the window all the time and they're not going to sleep. So we would write up a little piece of paper and hide it in the spacecraft. I called it photography for insomniacs. So during the sleep cycles, I'd tell them what rev and the time they'd get to places where I'd gotten letters from scientists all over the world wanting photographs of that area. The flight controllers couldn't understand why these pictures came back during sleep cycles. Nobody was sleeping out there. So that became a system through the rest of the program. We put the cameras on spacecraft and this piece of paper was in there. One astronaut knew where it was, so they'd get the pictures from that. Got a lot of great photos when, in theory, they're sleeping, not supposed to take photos on the later flights. Bergen, tell us how you train the astronauts. This is Tanya. There's another little excerpt cut out here, and we're back in. I remembered I'd always, after a while when I realized the value of the pictures, would tell some of them, you know, when you get back, you're going to be a national hero, you're going to get a parade in your hometown, and maybe a parade in Washington, and you're going to have dinner at the White House, and you're going to talk to a joint session of Congress. All through this time, all these computers in Building 30 are going to be punching information into big, thick books about what went on in this system, that system, the other system, and so on. The only people who are ever going to look at those books are probably guys going for a PhD in aerospace engineering or history or this sort of thing. And they've got a billion pieces of data on thousands and thousands of these books. That's their only value. But these photographs, if you get great photos, they'll live forever. Your key to immortality is in the quality of the photographs and nothing else. Some of the guys would say, oh, Dick, you're crazy. And then the next day they'd say, you know, you're right. I'll get you great pictures. So that was part of the motivation. And today those photos will live forever. They might say, who took it? Neil Armstrong or Jim Lovell or all these guys took it, took the picture. They'll live forever. Charles, quote unquote, Pete Conrad Jr. photographed this famed UFO. We thought it was a defect in the film. It was in three photographs. It was during the debriefing afterwards that Pete said, what did you think of that UFO? I said, what UFO? He said, well, I took three pictures of it on this one roll. 
I said, gee, I thought you were taking pictures of the S-band antenna on the Agena, and they were out of focus. It was a very definitive vehicle, not an artifact of any kind. It was a machine that was built by some humans somewhere in time, and we couldn't figure it out. We had no idea what it was or anything. This went on for years. Every time I'd roll that roll of film from Gemini 11, I'd think, what the devil is that? We have no idea what it is because we hadn't anything that we launched that looked like that. So maybe there are UFOs or something. Then the Soviets released a Fermis data and the data on their protons, which were very, very big vehicles. I looked at the pictures in Avweek, first release of the protons, and said, gee, looks a bit like this thing on Gemini 11. So I go back to it and I look at it, and yes, it has the same general shape. Then I got the Ephermis for the protons and the Ephermis for Gemini 11. And when Pete took the pictures, they were four miles apart over southern Africa at the time. So that's what we had. But I guess it was 10 years before. Every time I roll that roll, I'm scratching my head. And we never mentioned it to anybody, you know, at that point, that this thing was in there and nobody in the outside world caught it at that point. It was sort of like on Apollo 11. Nobody wondered why we never released any pictures of Neil Armstrong on the moon, because there weren't any. But we were told, don't mention it. And nobody in the news media picked this up. I can't figure that out to save my life. Why, every picture you released was Buzz Aldrin because Buzz was mad at Neil and didn't take his picture. Got hundreds of the other 11 guys walked on the moon, none of number one. Even public affairs office for a while thought of, why don't we say this picture by the flag is Armstrong? How do you know? You can't see his face or anything. I said, well, there's some nine-year-old kid out there who's a space groupie, and he knows every aperture and wire and seam in a spacesuit. The day after you publish it, the New York Times is going to have a letter from a nine-year-old kid saying, no, you're wrong. That's Buzz Aldrin. Well, don't mention it. So that's the way that sort of worked for years. Nobody brought that idea up. A lot of things weren't mentioned and got away with from that standpoint. I guess it was Shuttle 9 when the photo editor from Avweek and Space Technology was looking at some of those pictures. It was in a high inclination, one picture, and they were all cleared by the military. He said, what's in this picture? Snow on the ground, little circles spread out, almost like a spider web. I said, oh, that's a clear violation of the SALT, quote-unquote, strategic arms limitation treaty by the Soviet Union. Those missiles aren't supposed to be there. Well, of course, they put it on the cover of the magazine, and everybody from the Secretary of Defense on down the line wants to be put in front of a firing squad for telling him that. I said, the man asked a question. You guys released the photographs. You said there was nothing of value in them. If you didn't want the world to know that we know the Soviets violate their treaties and violate all treaties, you should have restricted the photo. But I had a bad reputation in DOD and the Pentagon for a number of years after that. Another interesting one was on Apollo 8, where William Andrews overexposed a roll of film by 10 stops, and they were the first pass behind the moon. It was a Super Royal X-Ban ASA 10,000 film. He exposed it at 64. The magazines were all coded, and he put the wrong one on because he told me when he was coming back from the moon that he was tired and put the wrong mag on. This is Tanya, another little excerpt removed here, and we're back in. So I guess it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and they're on their way back from the moon. First thing on the way back, and my phone rings, and Capcom says, Hey, Bill Anders wants to talk to you. So I hop on my bike in Nassau Bay, drive through the night into Mission Control, and Bill puts it, What if I used a Super Royal X-Pan like it was plus X? I said, There ain't no what-ifs. You done done it, because it's 3 o'clock in the morning here. You're 200,000 miles away. We talk what-ifs in meetings and in the real live world. You've done done it. 
He says, well, yes, I put the wrong mag on the pictures on the far side of the moon and all this. What can you do? I said, well, you destroyed the latent image. We'll think about it, but thanks for telling us. Either we're going to process the roll of film in advance and know what we're going to get, one as clean as a window pane, or we'll think about it. Then the next day, brought it up with our photo scientist, who was a PhD at a Rochester Institute of Technology, who had scholarships from Kodak, and he said, yeah, I remember reading something like that when I was a student of massive overexposure of film. Then we went to the Kodak research. They searched their papers. They went back into the early 20s paper that C.E.K. Mies did when he was chief of research at Eastman. For about 40 years, he was chief of research. He's the father of color film, I'd say, and the father of quality control, probably the number one photographic genius in all of history. Dr. Mies did it with a verichrome film, which doesn't record red very well. Your red Ozarka on that cup, if I had verichrome took the picture, it looked like a clean cup, you know, dead in the red, we used to say about verichromes. He did the same thing and ran some experiments with it, came up with some ideas and wrote, no one will need this technique. Houston, we need this technique 50 years later, 40 years later, 43 years later, I guess. No, 50 years later. What we did, we ran some experiments out of our aircraft to Ellington Field by vast overexposures, and we ended up, we bleached the latent image in the film with a bleach of all that silver. Then we dissolved out all this bleached silver. So at that point, you get a clear sheet of film, clear as that window pane. Then for a very, very long period of time, we developed a molecular type of image that's in a photograph that you and I have never used because we don't have time to expose it. That went on for eight hours. Then we fixed, washed, and dried it. We got some grainy but magnificent pictures of the far side of the moon at that point. So we had to go back to this guy who'd ran an experiment five years before I was born to have him rescue us. A man from his grave rescued us at that period of time. So you don't want to turn your back on your predecessors in your profession. They've done some remarkable things. Those pictures exist today because of that. During the whole process, you know, it's in the dark and Anders is in there. What are you doing now? Well, we're trying to save your butt at this point. We're not going to lose this roll of film. Thanks for telling us. If it had gone through the normal process without you telling us that night, it would have been totally destroyed. We wouldn't have had all these great pictures of the far side of the moon from the first orbits of the far side of the moon by human beings. So, looking back over your career with NASA, what are you most proud of? Underwood, most proud of in my own? Bergen, yes. Underwood, well, I guess the fact that I was involved in the Apollo project and very closely with those who used the camera to bring back the pictures and being the first human being to see them. Like on 17, you know that one full Earth? More people have seen that photo than any in the history of mankind, and I saw it first. I was the first person to see that photograph. It was wet in a processor in Building 8. When I saw it, I said, boy, that's it. And it was on 17, the last flight, because they went at night and went translunar over Madagascar, so they had a full-lit Earth because of where they were headed for on the moon. It was the only circumstance that brought that picture. And the fact that I kept telling Jack Schmidt, who is a geologist, that will be the classic picture. Make sure you get it after you go translunar, you know. And Jack worked it into his schedule and got the series of them because that one's at 28,000 miles. That's a perfect picture. And he aimed it beautifully. And I cut the glass slides and I got the big glass slide projector, which weighed about 50 pounds. And I brought it on home. I wanted the first people outside that gate. This is Tanya, he's meaning the NASA gate, back in, 
To see someone walking on the moon would be my children and my wife. I walked in the door of the house and my kids are having breakfast. And my eldest son, who's now a banker in New York, turns to his brothers and sisters and says, "Uh Uh-oh, dad's going to show us some more of that junk from space. Laughter. So that's the generation gap. So that was the way it worked. But they got to see them before anybody else did, before even PAO, that's Public Affairs Office. Bergen, what a privilege. Underwood, yes, junk from space. So this is Tanya again. Uh, This is not where the oral history ends, but I think I'll stop it here because I'm sure this is way too long already. But uh, once again, I'll include the uh, URL for uh, Jeff and or Liz to include in the show notes if they so desire. I really hope you enjoyed this and hope to see some of you soon at one meetup or another along the way. Cheers. Thanks, Tanya. That was awesome. Thank you very much for taking the time to do that. That was a lot of work, I'm sure. And uh, as she said, I will have the link to all of that in the show notes, ITSN. And uh, I don't know, you smell something weird. Ah, Oh, look, look who's joined us. It's Captain Nick. <laughs> it's the smell of a new Airbus. <laughs> oh, Wait a minute. I guess there we should do is. this, huh? Um... Hi, everybody. Hi, Rick. Lovely to see you, mate. Hey, what's going on, Nick? Everything uh, good? I, yeah. <laughs> the grounding Airbus is as fast as they can build them, so I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you know, we were, not I just was, the Airbuses. <laughs> I was thinking about putting yeah. that uh, news item uh, for our show that we're going to do Saturday morning, but let's just talk about it now. I guess the, the A340 had already been uh, slated for retirement. Is that correct? And then they kind of extended it a little bit, and now I guess it's all kaput. Yeah, you know what it's like in the airline industry, Jeff. Uh, and hi, everybody. Sorry for my late arrival. Um, the It's all predicated by demand, and they make plans, but they're you know, passenger demand, things vary all the time. Uh, and so the 340 was sort of lingering on, uh, as, you know, seven fours have been in, in other airlines. Uh, the, the big fours have had their day, but they, they can still make money. Um, uh, but uh, this uh, this current downturn in the industry has uh, sounded the death knell, and uh, so I think uh, it's a good time to uh, put the old girl to bed, and uh, she, she'll sit and be made into uh, more more bag tags, <laughs> <laughs> key, key uh, fobs and such. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, you everyone have uh, a three forty earrings and uh, trinkets. Belly button uh, things, yeah. Um, I was just looking at my my junk drawer over here because I think I actually have some of those. In your junk drawer? It should be in your (laughs) prized treasure (laughs) chest. (laughs) I must have given given them out as uh, gifts already because I don't see it. It's in a rubbish bin, I think. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> hey, uh, Nick, you yeah, look awfully... you uh, dazzled by uh, A340 bits before long. <laughs> hey, Nick, you look awfully uh, uh, dressed up there. Um, you just coming back from uh, some kind of a special event? Uh, yeah, I've been lecturing, uh, as I sometimes do, uh, this time at RAF Marham, just up the road here, where the uh, British have uh, won A3... Sorry, uh, yeah... Um, the F-35B, oh, I've got to get it right, Lightning II, uh, is being introduced into the United Kingdom. They've got uh, 
They've got 15 of them, I think, uh, oh, there wow. now. So, uh, in fact, I was coming back from having uh, lectured the aviation enthusiasts that are there. And if any of you are listening, they've all got my card. Uh, hopefully, a few of them will tune in. Uh, it was great to meet you all. Fabulous audience. Uh, from the base to come back to the pub round and stay the night. I was right in the uh, in the going through the approach lights uh, in the little country lane, and an uh, an F thirty five didn't approach oh, nice. over the top of us, and it looked fabulous and sounded brilliant. Oh wow! Nice. Hey Nick, could you do me a favor uh, when you're talking? Can you like hold your arm up and like off to the left a little bit? Just kind uh, of like rabbit ears, um, like your your signal is kind of cutting it out. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think the Wi-Fi would be great. I can just reduce my uh, camera um, definition a bit. That might help, Jordy. Reckon? Yeah, that'll probably help. Cut down on the yeah. bandwidth the up yeah. bandwidth requirement. Um, All right. So I, I didn't think the pub Wi-Fi would be brilliant, but they. Oh no! Is this where you are in the pub? Very quiet. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's a very nice country pub. They're having a gourmet evening downstairs. The pub. I'm a guest. It has been a bit noisy, so my apologies if you hear a lot of carousing going on down below. Nope. The only carousing we hear is in your room, and that's all we're going to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're going to have there. Carousing. So, um, Nick, if you don't mind, um, I'd like to play this piece of feedback, or not play it, but uh, cover it, since you're here with us tonight. Uh, this came in uh, from Dylan and Nicole, and uh, they're referring, or he is referring to uh, the plain tale, Sounds Like a Drag, in episode 407. And the response, or the, the email here says, Loved the episode, watched a new movie called Six Underground, on Netflix and in the movie, their base is the boneyard at Mojave. And there is a Convair 990 in the scene. You can tell by the speed pods. I'm sorry, speed pods. Love your show. Okay, Nick you, over. You cut out, you cut out there. You see, I had speed pods and then <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Love your show. was the last thing. Oh, well, that's great. Isn't that fantastic? I, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the Convair 990 until I did some research. And now a lot of us know about it. What an amazing airplane. Uh, it was even faster than the 747. And that takes some doing. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. That really does. Is it, is it really that it was, it was the 990 because it was 990 feet per second? Is that how it went? Or was that just a marketing thing? No, I think the 880 was the original. So I'm assuming that when they got a slightly faster version, they called it the it 990. It was just convenient to up the numbers yeah. by one. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah. Yeah, I think that was it. it. Seems like a trendy thing to do for airlines, doesn't it? Yeah, really. Wow. <laughs> no, but those pods are just unbelievable. You know, it's just yeah. uh, really cool looking. Definitely. Okay. Uh, also, one more. Love to see it. Right? Like a, squeeze one more in. That's what she said. Uh, item number two. <laughs> from. <laughs> I always enjoy getting. That was not a great combination. That either. was yeah. That was very disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, VC10 Ron oh uh, writes in. Uh, being a keen radio amateur, I regularly use the local Volmet. Transmission on 126.595 megahertz, London information, to check my antenna is to check if my antenna is still up. Haha. -ha. 
it's quite useful as I know its average signal strength is around an S9. This is all stuff that I do not understand. Uh, a quick check. Strength, strength 9, S9. Oh, okay. A quick check Which on, the, good strength. on the Volmet frequency confirms everything is up and running. I was a little confused the other morning, though, when I turned to it and heard the computerized lady's voice stating that the dew point was minus zero. How can you get minus zero? Surely it would just be zero. Have you guys and girls ever heard the dew point been referred to as a minus zero? Any reason for this, or am I just hearing things? I know Captain Nick is a keen radio ham. Maybe he'll know. Thanks. I think that was VC10 Ron, uh, a.k.a. Golf. Is that a zero or an O? I think it's a zero. Golf Zero Mike Bravo Victor, Class A radio amateur in North, North Yorkshire, UK. Well, it's not that far from where I am now. I'm by the wash, which is no indication of my personal hygiene, but just a uh, a bit that sticks in where the sea gets uh, in. Um, I I was intrigued myself to know why you get a minus zero. I went, mean, that's a bit confusing. Uh, but I did, in fact, inquire of a friend of mine uh, who to say, what are you doing putting a minus zero in there? And apparently, um, a temperature or dew point between minus 0.5 centigrade and minus 0.1 is encoded uh, as M00, whilst a temperature I minus zero. Whilst a temperature or dew point between 0 0.0 centigrade and plus 0.4 centigrade is encoded as zero zero, so it's a form of rounding up or rounding down. So it's slightly below zero if it goes minus zero, uh, and if you don't get a minus, it's slightly above. But it's all within sort of point nine of a degree of zero itself. So the computerized voice doesn't really have the logic to understand that anything, whether it's minus or plus zero, is just zero. It just says well, what. Well, that's true, but also in the written code. Of Mm -hmm. If you see uh, zero, zero in the written uh, ATIS, it'll mean that it's ever so slightly below zero. All right. Very good. Well, I'm glad you came and, and thank was you able very to much explain. to MIB, uh, who is in the town, did that for me. Oh, very nice. Thank you, MIB. All right. So let's see. I think we're at the point now where we might want to go ahead and um, stop part one, and then we'll pick it up uh, on Saturday morning with part two. Anything uh, y'all would like to add or subtract? I guess you can't really do that uh, before we uh, call it uh, quits for tonight. Well, I personally would like to add my enormous appreciation for Rick to come in back to the show. Uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, having him on as a regular, and uh, I think it's absolutely brilliant. I'm Thank you, Nick. Thank I'd you. Myself. I'm sorry. We, we're having trouble, Nick, with your signal. We're, we're walking all over you, and we don't mean to. Oh, that's okay. I'm used to it. <laughs> Do you want me to say it again? Yes, please, and say it with more feeling this time. Okay. Uh, Rick, I love you, man. I love you. I'm so pleased you're back. <laughs> love you too, Nickster. No, I'm really, I'm, I'm really, really happy to be back and it's going to be, it's going to be good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, we just, it's, it's going to be easier. We're all sort of in the same kind of, you know, time zone, you know, I'm no longer on the other side of the world and, um, it's, um, 
I'm looking forward to doing this. It's going to be good. It's going to yeah, be it's going to be it's going to be great. Excellent. Great. All right. Um, really don't like the way he's grabbing that microphone. So let's go ahead and end this thing before we have some kind of a complaint from uh, YouTube and Facebook. Anyway, uh, with that, um, thanks everyone for uh, joining us on part one. And uh, we're going to go ahead and say that this is over. <laughs> and now we're. I'm going to hit the stop button on my recording. So last we heard from Nick, he was uh, relaxing in his um, hotel room just above the above the pub uh, in where Bung, Bungi Bungay Bunga. No, no, it was up near um, RAF Marham, which is about an hour's drive from uh, Bungi. Oh, okay. Uh, so uh, it, 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 I just done my uh, Royal Aeronautical uh, lecture there. Stayed the night. Um, had a lovely breakfast the next day, jumped in the car, and then I drove down to Bungie to join the PTUK guys. So um, I had a, uh, well, a few hours to kill, so I had a hunt round. Um, there's a little uh, aviation museum, sadly closed, but they've got some external exhibits I could uh, poke around. And uh, basically hung around till uh, Carlos c- came home from work and then uh, joined them for their show last night, which was great fun, in their closet uh, studio. Um, uh, it's very hard coming out of the closet if you're in PTUK, so most of them stay in the closet. Uh, it's Probably best, get- best for the world, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Quite hard to get the door open. But actually then uh, I treated them uh, to a nice meal, at the least I could do. I think we went to their favorite uh, Thai restaurant, had a lovely meal, and uh, – uh, a few beers, uh, and this morning it was early to rise, uh, so I could leap in the car and drive for three hours to get home in time for this show. So, uh, whew, it's quite what, a, what an amazing media personality you are! <laughs> wow, well, I spread myself around it, it appears. Yeah, yeah. I'm a bit like a virus. Well, we're happy to have you whenever we can get you. <laughs> well, thanks very much. And the only other news I have is that my trip to Hamburg has now been cancelled. Oh, no. Apparently, the authorities in Hamburg have told uh, schools uh, to close and they've told the universities that they don't advise them to uh, do anything that attracts you know, big crowds. And well, not there'd be a big crowd if I let you there, but you know, they, they've stopped a lot of those events. So right. Basically, they've said, no, thanks very much. Don't come. Lots of cancellations going on. Yep. So I have a fairly free week now. Okay. Excellent. Well, Dana, you weren't with us on the last episode. And uh, why don't you catch us up with you? Um, on Thursday, yes, I was not there. I was actually watching uh, remotely because um, after my trip last week, which uh, was a four-day trip. and Was it four days? Yeah, it was a four-day trip. Uh, turned into uh, nothing extraordinary to talk about and talk to my lovely bride. And this time of the year, there's this uh, small uh, event down in Daytona Beach that's going on regarding motorcycles. I'm kind of, if you, you can't see on the uh, video, if you're just listening, I'm wearing my Harley Davidson shirt and my uh, Bike Week hat because I was down at Daytona Bike Week. We decided to hop on the flight after I got uh, home from work on Tuesday. Got down there Tuesday evening and uh, spent Wednesday 
and decided to come home Thursday evening instead of Friday morning. So when uh, the crew was recording on Thursday afternoon, I was sitting on an airplane waiting to uh, take off because they had flow issues into Atlanta due to some weather up in the Nashville area, apparently. So we had about an hour, I mean, excuse me, about a 35-minute ground delay. So I decided to tune in and watch because uh, I didn't want to come in and, and create too much noise of the background noise on the airplane. So, yeah, you com- you confused us, Dana, because you said something about being in the – the thing that caught my attention was you said you were in the back of the airplane waiting for something. And I'm thinking, I don't think he's on a trip. I, I think he just got back from a trip, actually. Yep, so now, was, now it makes sense. Now we know. Now, yep, on. I was non-revving okay. and uh, going standby, had my lovely bride, and we um, you know, had no problem getting to and from. And I just found out uh, late last night that they have decided to go ahead and discontinue the actual rally, which has never been done before. Oh, uh, They are sending everybody home today. Um, so it's a day early. And uh, obviously the rally kicked off before everything started getting hot and heavy with the the uh, virus is going around, um, so uh, my <laughs> my friends and my cousin all you know my cousin just got there last night, and my friends have been there for a few days, and, and obviously they're now going to have to be sent home, hmm. which leads into the other thing I heard you guys talking a little bit about, and uh, you know you know how I encourage people to go ahead and take that jump and leap of faith, and I always kind of put a caveat on it onto it that. Unless there's a world event that changes the the landscape of how the aviation uh, world will be, um, unfortunately, folks, we're here. Uh, that is uh, this this coronavirus, COV, COVID, however they say, nineteen. COVID nineteen. COVID COVID nineteen. I knew Doctor Steph would chime in there. COVID nineteen um, is just it's completely changed the landscape of. Uh, of the aviation world. So I, you know, obviously it's a, it's a very, um, very fluid situation to see how it will affect the airlines in the long term. I'm hoping it's not going to be overly uh, long. As a matter of fact, I happened to bump into an Acme um, uh, employee at the uh, local liquor store last night because, you know, the only place I would need a actual push cart, it wouldn't be in the supermarket. It's in the liquor store because I was stocking up, you know, got to be ready for everything. Right. So, anyways, uh, he worked in network and planning, and so I, you know, he, and it said right on the shirt. So I, of course, started up a little conversation with him, and he was very optimistic that this, uh, the disruption from this, is not going to be uh, nearly as bad as it was for nine eleven. Um, and the reason being is because nine eleven people were just flat out scared to fly because of the, the security threat. Where this is, once this thing blows over, that. Uh, the recovery for all the airlines uh, worldwide will be rapid. So, yeah, uh, I'm 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 sticking to the positive side on things on that. Um, I know I tend to go on the dark side of things, but I'm I'm hoping that uh, uh, this is only going to be a few month uh, bump in the road. Obviously, going to affect you know airline profitability throughout the world for the next year uh, or two. Uh, however. I think I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna be as bad as as it was for nine eleven. That's what my thought is on that. Right, I agree. And uh, let's see. Thinking about or Liz pointed me over here to uh, feedback item number nine from Charles, and uh, the title of his feedback is "Tailwinds to Headwinds." Hi, Captain Jeff. I've been a big fan and constant viewer of your APG show for years. Seeing news that Ed Bastian, uh, who is uh, the CEO of our 
sister airline, very, very similar to Acme, uh, is foregoing a year salary and DAL Delta is cutting capacity by 40%. I thought of you and your co-hosts immediately. I understand you try to avoid speaking about your own company, but this is not my company. It's a different one. Uh, but with your experience living through various industry upheavals, I hope on the next show, you can provide working pilots at all airlines some advice on weathering this storm. I remember all the furloughs and life changes that accompanied 9-11. Not a pilot myself, just an aviation industry aficionado, but wishing you all the best, Charles Lankford. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that. And a a lot of people have expressed their um, concern uh, for and good thoughts for the uh, people on the APG crew and in the community uh, that are uh, working in this industry and uh, as dana just expressed uh, we're we're hoping that this is going to be a temporary thing and that we'll be able to recover and maybe be stronger than we were before this all hit um uh, one of the things i think i mentioned on the last show dana the uh we we're going to we knew that that acme was going to reduce um some of the flight schedules even domestically Maybe not as significantly as the international, uh, but uh, they basically said, go ahead and bid for your April schedule, and then we're going to make adjustments after the bid is awarded. Mm-hmm. But things changed even more significantly, and yep. uh, we just heard, I think, yesterday that, okay, never mind, forget the April bid that you did. We're canceling that. Uh, the company uh, worked with the union to come up with a, a strategy, and so now we're going to. It's going to be a basic do-over, and I think they're going to open up uh, April bidding on the sixteenth, so yep, Monday, Monday, and then it closes on Thursday or something like that. So they get, they're going to give us a period of time to redo our April bidding. So I'm kind of be yeah. interested to see what those trips are going to look like. Yeah, and, and not only that, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, are they going to wipe out all of our bids that are currently in the system and we have to go back in and rebid? Because mm. they weren't very clear about that. I hope not. Um, I I don't know. It, it seems as though they're they're rebidding, you know, they want, because it's it's saying they're reopening bidding. So I, I don't know. Yeah. You know, we'll know on Monday when we go in and see if our bids are still there. But, right. you know, that's that's a small bump in the road. I think for the next few months, it's going to be uh, sit back and wait. I, I honestly... Uh, you know, I, he didn't know the answer last night when I was talking with the the gentleman from Network. But um, I'm wondering if if our fleet is not going to be yeah. uh, expeditiously yeah. uh, retired. So that's the thing that's going to be much more significant for Dana and I specifically because we are on a fleet that has is in the middle of a retirement phase, and uh, there are a lot of rumors out there that are saying that well, amongst the 300 airplanes that. Acme wants to park. Um, probably a good chunk of those are going to be the Mad Dog, and so um, we'll see what happens. You know, just kind of play it by ear and just kind of go along with the uh, the flow. And it might be that I'm flying a, or both of us are flying a different airplane much more, much sooner than we thought we were going to. But. Yeah, and, and more than likely, I mean, with you, Jeff, you're 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 you know you're very senior, so you're going to have the you know the run of the mill, the pick of pick of the choice. I'm Depending on how it all works out, I may very likely end up back as a first officer because mm-hmm. there's just not going to be any captain positions for me to go to. Right. So, but, but you know, it'll be I, just it, a short-term bump in the road. You know. Well, you know, and what I was just going to say is, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about all the people that are that are you know junior that may not, uh, you know, may not uh, be. I don't know if they're going to furlough. I don't know. You know, I'm hoping they're not going to go that route. But I'm, you know, if anybody is is in that predicament. You know, I'll be very thankful that I'm 
still employed and, and, and you know, not, uh, not forgetting the people that are junior right. to me that may, may be suffering far more than I would be going back to, to first officer. So, you know, I say that with, the, with the, you know, complete and total gratitude to anybody that, that would be in that situation. So, um, I think uh, I agree with you, Jeff. I think it's going to be a temporary bump in the road. But you know what? I did I did see in them, and I'm hoping they didn't they didn't really come out with any details. Two things I'm hoping: one is that they come out with an early retirement package, which would certainly lessen the pain uh, for some of the senior guys that are really looking. I, as a matter of fact, I bumped in bumped into a, uh, a captain that's in your seniority range, uh, Jeff, uh, that out in uh, El Paso last week. And, uh, you know, we had a lot of good flying times together and we were talking about, and he said, uh, he's 60 and he's going out in November. I'm not using his name, not telling any details of what happened, but he's going out in November. So, Mm -hmm. you know, those type of guys that, that they may be able to attract to to go early. Also, the other thing uh, that was very interesting is, did you see that they went ahead and renewed that 55 hour where you can go ahead and say, um, you know, don't use me. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and I'll get paid 55 hours. Mm-hmm. Obviously, significant reduction in pay. However, um, I think that would be very beneficial to help hopefully uh, stemming any possible uh, need for furloughs over this very temporary period. Right. Can I just bring this in, perhaps into a wider perspective? Mm-hmm. Of course, uh, you guys are pretty well insulated, I think, as are the major legacy operators in the United States. Uh, the rest of the world, uh, there are airlines which I don't think will survive through this period. That they're, they're going to go down. Now, the interesting factor is for those airlines that can survive, uh, because they're when you're right, when we start flying and everyone starts flying again, there are going to be big gaps in the market because not all the airlines that were there are going to still be there. And those airlines that can expand rapidly into that gap uh, will uh, take a leap forward uh, in their size and uh, you know their, their stature, et cetera, et cetera. They, they will become much larger outfits. And those are, it's a real balancing job for the bosses, I think, of the airlines to say, well, I can't really get rid of, I don't want to get rid of my pilots because in three, four months' time, I want to get new airframes, I want to fill them full of pilots, and I want to take over these routes which I think are going to be available uh, and expand in and really establish myself in new markets, et cetera. So there are going to be opportunities, uh, but in the meantime, there's going to be a hell of a lot of turmoil. Casualties, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's very well said, Nick, and that's a very, very, uh, um, very good thought, as well as, you know, let's not forget, even though there's going to be contraction, there's still a fairly significant pilot shortage um, and even with the contraction, I think that it's still going to be driven by a lot of the retirements that are coming up uh, in a very short order. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'm leaning towards being far more positive than, than I have in the past, um, that this will be a very short term uh, bump in the road. For, for everybody. Yeah. We like it. I we like the hope, positive, Dana. Absolutely. I just hope <laughs> yeah. that everyone in the industry has done what I was uh, uh, told to do by uh, a, a, clever, a chap cleverer than me and was to keep three months' salary in a bank account somewhere and never touch it so that when this sort of thing happens, you have got something to fall back on to allow you to continue to pay your mortgage and your bills and get through because often these are relatively short-term blips and it 
doesn't take you that long to uh, that's, get a that's new good advice job. for anyone in, in any field, especially with things like this, because certainly this is affecting aviation pretty hard. It's also going to be affecting a lot of other industries and businesses. Um, I'll go one step further even and say if you're one of those folks who's got student loans still. So if you're a relatively new hire at an airline and you've got a lot of loans, um, try and save up even more than that six months worth, because if it's uncertain and you've got a big chunk of your salary going towards loans, in addition to all of your um, just, you know, daily monthly expenses, you're going to need a little bit extra. So the more you can put away and, and not touch and have as an emergency fund, the better. I, th- I thought you, <laughs> I was saying out with some friends last night and I thought, you know, I, I get, I've got 10 months. I mean, I've got 10 months worth of liquidity in the account that can hold us through. And I was like, yeah, that's great. The the, the other buddy sitting there says, yeah, I've got, uh, I've got 70 years. Yeah. Look at- <laughs> Seventy years. What do you have? How old are you? (laughs) He's he's forty-two. He's very optimistic. Well, no, he started a business. He started a business and sold it. Ah. Did very well with it. So he's in the money. He's in definitely in the money. So Um, yes. Oh, I was just going to say, just to go back to the point of, you know, talking about, yes, there's still the fact, so we're going through this obviously uncertain period right now, but assuming we come out the other side of this in hopefully short order, you know, I think no one really knows right now, there's there's a lot of uncertainty related to that. Um, but if and, and when we do, not if, I know when, um, like Dana was saying, I think there's still going to be that issue of actually being a pilot pilot shortage. You know, you're going to have those airlines that are able to expand back into the market. They're going to need people, folks to get back out and go flying. Um, there's been some talk in the chat room about how right now this is a very disappointing time for all those CFIs out there, or folks building their time who are getting very close to 1500 hours. And, you know, a month, six weeks ago thought, Hey, I'm, I'm nearly there. Maybe I've got a class date and I'm going to start. And then all of that has come to a screeching halt. So hopefully those folks out there are able to keep that perspective as well, that, uh, you know, on the other side of this, Hopefully they'll be ready to go and and keep their uh, keep their flying skills up and have their resumes up to date and all of that good stuff. Yeah, I guess uh, you know it's important for us here uh, to, as you just did, Steph, remind everybody that's listening to the show that is in that kind of position. Um, you know, you CFI working on the hours, or you maybe even have an application in. You've been invited for an interview, or you might even be already set up with a class date that just got canceled, please don't give up hope. This will, we will work through this and there will be, um, we're thinking for a lot of people out there, great opportunities. So just, you know, keep the faith. Okay. Anything else? Well, it's one other thing. And Dr. Steph said to allude to it is the student loans. I believe if you live in the United States that they're looking at, um, student loan, some type of interest forgiveness or something. I heard it on the news real briefly when I was falling back asleep uh, about four o'clock this morning when I woke up. Um, but I think there's something in this, this bill that they're passing with relief to student loan debt. So look into that. Yeah. I mean, certainly anytime you can take advantage of those types of things, if it, if it applies to you, look into it. I don't know any of the specifics there, but um, you want to put yourself in the best position possible to be financially stable. Exactly. All right. Um, since we've kind of made this in an, a little miniature getting to know us segment, why don't we just continue with that? And then after this, we'll head over. Sorry for the choppiness of this, because normally we don't do these two parters and sometimes things get all jumbled up. And then, of course, something like this major world event happens and we feel like we are compelled to talk about it because it's important for all of you out there to hear our perspective regarding it. Um 
So I got a message from Landon Harvey out in uh, Northern California, and I love this. And I've been thinking about kind of promoting this idea, uh, but I just have not said anything about it on the show. But when Landon sent me a notification that they formed a West Coast APGers Facebook group, I thought, yes. He says, you know, we can have meetups, APG meetups. We don't need to have APG crew members there. And I said, yeah, it actually might be a lot better without us. <laughs> so um, I'm uh, encouraging everybody out Speak there. For to, yourself. <laughs> I'm encouraging everyone out there to uh, to do the same. Uh, if you're in an area and there are a bunch of people that uh, share this passion for aviation, and even if they're not listeners to APG or maybe they just listen to other aviation podcasts, although I think that most of the folks that listen to our show listen to many other aviation podcasts because there's so many great ones out there form a group and have meetups and uh, and then report back to us and let us know, you know, send some audio or video or whatever and let us know how or photos to uh, let us know how that all went. And I was thinking, um, Nick uh, the and Steph, when you were with uh, Captain Al for his 50th birthday, I love the, uh, the little heads on a stick thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be great if uh, everybody had a had a meetup out there. You could put our heads on a stick and we could be there with you sort of. You know, not yeah, not literally. Not I, literally. I, you can look at oh, a no, picture, yeah. but a I picture don't want of my head. head on the stick. Yeah, I was going to say that's, an, that's isn't that an old thing in England? <laughs> yeah, that, Roman, you know, no, the Roman people's heads on sticks. Yeah, the, you know, yeah. the Roman Empire they did. Yeah, oh. yeah. yeah, you'll be find yourself on Traitor's Gate. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Steph, you were going to say something. No, I and I'm going to mess around with my internet again here because okay. it's just getting worse instead of better. So if well, I don't your, say anything for your a signal minute, to us is pretty good, actually. The up is, is good. It? Okay. Yeah. Because I'm having I'm having a bit of a hard time hearing you all right now because it's uh, gotten very there's, there's some late chop going on in. The, uh, we'll do. Uh, the, will you sign language? Audio. I could do. Yeah. Well, I can do that. But I don't. I don't know how your guys is. Yeah. Okay. We all have yeah. no idea. We'll just be. Yeah. Dan, Dan is doing sign language right now. It's. I uh, need his airplane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so that I I wanted to mention, so, uh, everybody out there in the Northern California area, um, do a search or contact, uh, Landon or many of the other, um, wonderful APGers out in uh, Northern California to learn more about the, uh, West coast APGers Facebook group. That's awesome. I believe they're having, they've already set up a a time for a meetup, um, I think sometime later in the month. That is, if they're allowed to do it. I don't know. Maybe they they'll have to postpone that event because of the um, restrictions for what are we calling it? What are we calling it? Social distancing, I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the other thing I just wanted to briefly mention: uh, I'll next week. I'll if if I'm flying next week. I'm assuming we're still still on. I have a, a double Houston layover. Um, and um, going to be there on Monday night and Tuesday night. We believe we're going to be recording the uh, next show on Tuesday. So that's going to be kind of out. And it's St. Patrick's Day. So many of you out there uh, probably already have plans to you know, have some kind of a party uh, for St. No Patrick's Day. Gatherings. Yeah. Well, okay. Maybe in your in your home. Yeah, well, that's right. We wouldn't. Well, that's true, Dana. Maybe we shouldn't have a uh, meetup in Houston on Monday because that's a public gathering. It's not that big of a public gathering. Obviously, yeah. with a meetup, there'll only be a couple people there, especially if you're there. Okay. Well, I, I, I was reminded of that. It'll, it'll just be me. Oh, very cute. I just finally understood because everybody's laughing. I'm thinking, why are they laughing? Oh, I know. 
now. We can have an online, uh, which is much safer, gathering. Well, we'll see. David Ogden, I noticed, was in the chat room. I I think he's still in there. Um, And he mentioned that uh, it'd be nice to have some sort of uh, very small, with lots of social distance, uh, meetup. And uh, so I'm going to say, let's shoot for um, Monday, but I'll put information in the Slack, if I remember to do it, uh, David will too, and we'll we'll think of something. We'll figure out something. So, just wanted to mention that. Um, okay, man, we're running out of time. Um, shall we do the uh, jump plan- into news and feedback or plain tales or something? Right. Well, exactly. Which one? <laughs> Thanks for Your that direction. Choice. You're in charge. Oh, not yeah. quite. Not quite, Neville. I'm. What does Neville say? Ne- ne- Neville said Dane has clearly been looking at those special, special specialist gentlemen's websites. No. Oh, because he's protecting himself. Yes. Yeah, Dana. Uh, if you're not, I'm not. I'm not wearing that type of protection, Neville. <laughs> so uh, Dana is um, on the video, uh, and uh, he is wearing goggles and a face mask and a very heavy black. Um, Black latex gloves. gloves that I've yeah. seen. My, my cooking, my specialist sites. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what you say. Yeah, oh, yeah. It doesn't show as much. No, I actually had a friend that's watching the show, and he said, smile, you're in camera. And uh, so I decided to go ahead and put on my, because he's probably just started watching. So there you go, Craig. Oh, I know <laughs> what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this because uh, we didn't do this on the last episode. So hang on. Just we'll do this quickly. Johnny, how much more coffee? Go bang. I love coffee. Mm. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, Coffee Fun. That's a way you can fin- uh, financially support the APG show. And a couple of different ways to do it. One is the classic method, and one is the Patreon. Patreon, you can become a patron of the show. But let's start with the classic fund, and we have some contributions from Richard Adams and Darren Foley. And oh, very, very uh, nice contribution. Thank you, Darren and Rich. Um, and a recurring payment uh, or recurring donation from George Leslie. So thank you, everyone, for your financial support. And I mentioned the other way to do it is you, you can become a patron of the show via Patreon.com. We don't have any new patrons this week, but that's a great way to do it. So uh, let's see. If you're interested in joining the Coffee Fun Cadre and the Coffee Fun Club, Coffee Bar Club, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. And thank you, all of you who have been contributors to our show for a long period of time and the new ones too welcome i hear i hear dana giggling in the background even though he's muted i can still hear him. something is either that or he's about to uh i don't know keel over yeah okay <laughs> something no, I, actually, I have everybody looking at me funny because you know remember i've had this cough since beginning of january mm-hmm are you the one that invented this virus? Uh-huh. I am. Oh, I am. I'm the Dana. one. Yeah. It's, it's we me. found patient zero. Yeah. yeah. Patient I'm zero. Like Here I am. No. So everybody looks at me and like, nope, 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 nope. I feel fine. 
Okay. Haven't you got to have sex thing. with a monkey though to get this particular virus? Or am I no, thinking it's a of bat. a different? Is a bat? Get it right. That's, <laughs> That's something entirely only, different. Only a blind oh, okay. animal would want to be with me. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's uh, quickly cover the first item in the second part two news folder. <laughs> item D. Uh, a Thai A three thirty shears tail off a Gulfstream four in Vientiane. I don't know. Is that right? Laos. Uh, let's see. A Thai Airways A330-300 has nearly ripped the tail off. Not nearly. It did. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the pictures, which oh, we'll have in the show notes. Hanging by a small thread there. Just Yeah, I guess. Okay, maybe not completely, but pretty much, uh, yeah, as Steph said, just hanging on by a thread of uh, sheet metal, or I guess not sheet metal, but uh, aluminum. Or aluminium for our friends in other places around the world. The accident occurred in darkness on 9th, uh, 9 March as the A330 prepared to operate Flight 575 on the Ventiane Bangkok Suvarnabhumi route, <laughs> which I'd seen that name uh, before I started trying to pronounce it. Oh, well. When the pilot took the plane out onto the taxiway, its wing collided with the tail of a small personal plane. Images on social media show that the outboard leading edge of the A330's left wing suffered damage. As for the private jet, I love this um, identifier here. Mike Yankee Whiskey Alpha Yankee. And to me, it looks like my way. Exactly. I did it my way. Well, yes. Yeah. He's, oh, he's, my. Uh, He's gone by the byway. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry to all those who appreciate Frank Sinatra. I just butchered that. Um, anyway, the end, uh, you'll have to look at the photo, but it's a pretty, pretty sad looking um, Gulfstream 4. What a beautiful jet that has been significantly altered. I'd, I'd say that's wrecked. Yeah. Uh, didn't do that much damage to the 330, mind you. He's got a bit of a dink on his, uh, his leading edge uh, flaps. A dink, huh? Yeah. A dink. I think, yeah. Hmm. Well, it just shows uh, you need a little more room than you think sometimes. Yep. That is true. Wow. Okay. And then uh, quickly, uh, the next one that we have here, we've talked about this on uh, earlier episodes. Uh, and this happened uh, on the 17th of July last year. An, uh, an American Airlines aircraft mechanic, Abdul Majid Marouf Ahmed Alani, or Alani, was sentenced to 37 months in prison for deliberately tampering with an American Airlines Boeing 737. Again, that was July uh, last year. The 60-year-old had been an American Airline employee for more than 30 years. Wow. Talking about throwing it away. Uh, yeah. Very sad. So um, you'll remember he's the one that uh, took a little piece of foam rubber or uh, styrofoam or something and put it in the line for the, uh, I believe it was the angle of attack or was it uh, airspeed? One of the, one of the lines that uh, provide data to our uh, instrumentation. And uh, they noticed that something wasn't quite right before they uh, took off and they returned to the gate and found that uh, they had looked at some security video and found that he had uh, been working in that area um, in the electronics compartment um, underneath the cockpit and uh, yeah basically he uh, admitted to putting this item in at first people thought maybe this was terrorism related but it turns out that he was just trying to 
You'll remember back then it was American Airlines and was it Southwest, I think, as well. The uh, mechanics and um, the company, the union and the company were. Yeah, there was a a lot of negotiations and talks and non-contracts and things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, he was a little upset about the lack of progress in the negotiations. And then he wanted to somehow generate a little bit more income for himself, some overtime or whatever. So that, that was his explanation anyway. So uh looks like um, they, well, they, they did uh, prosecute him. And again, he was sentenced to 37 months in prison for deliberately tampering. Did, did they work out whether like, this was his only uh, act uh, like this? Or did he ask for any other cases to be taken into consideration? Not to my knowledge. I don't think there was anything yeah. else. No, I don't think so. Or, or at least that was known. So. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you do wonder if, you know, if he'd actually done this, it would become habitual, whether he'd done this before, whatever. What a way to throw your career away. Right. Wow. Yeah, sad. Anyway, luckily, nobody was hurt in this. It could have been a catastrophic thing, potentially, I guess. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, that's it for uh, the items that we had in this part two news folder. And I think might it might be a great time to get to the best part of the show, which everyone knows is the old pilot's plain tales. So here we go. Let's listen to this week's installment. The old pilot's plain tales. Passing more gas. That way refueling is, by its very nature, one of the riskier military pastimes. When in current practice, it's not a particularly hard exercise, especially for fighter crews whose aircraft are exceedingly nimble. When given a tanker to use, it can be on station, flying a large holding pattern. It might be joining a formation of aircraft on a long transit to give them fuel they need to complete a leg of their journey, or it might be following a QRA aircraft during an intercept, ready and available whenever the QRA fighter needs to top up his fuel state. The join between a fighter with an air intercept radar is bread and butter to most crews. The tanker merely flies around and the fighter does all the work, although it can be accomplished the other way around. As he makes his final approach from astern, the leader usually puts himself closest to the tanker's left side and lines up his formation in a loose echelon left outside of him. After being cleared to join, he stabilizes on the tanker's wing. Like all formation maneuvers, until he's stabilized, he keeps a little separation as an escape lane in case he misjudges his approach. Once alongside the tanker, it's the tanker's captain who controls the formation, clearing each aircraft in turn to cycle through the hoses. This is usually done on the radio, but if no radio procedures are in force, then the whole thing can be done silently, using simple signals such as trailing a hose, which means I have fuel to give you. The anti-collision beacon off for a while means clear a stern a hose, The receiver always takes the furthest hose. When astern, the hose pod traffic lights, red, amber and green, are used for the actual refueling. Red means don't make contact, or if in contact, fly a breakaway manoeuvre. Amber means clear for contact, 
Once in contact, the fighter will push the hose up until the green light comes on, which means fuel flows. A flashing green indicates that you've had your allowance and you're clear to withdraw. Once clear and astern, the fighters will cycle through to echelon right and then depart. The hardest bit is, of course, making contact. Once alongside, the fighter crews will do their refueling checks. In the F3 Tornado, for example, they went like this. Fuel, check quantity, radar, standby. The radar is powerful and there might be fuel spraying around. Tacanda receive, IFF interrogator and IFF both to standby. Multiple transponders in the same piece of sky are confusing for controllers who are easily confused souls. HF off for the same reason as the radar. Master arm safety switch standby, laid arm switch on the trigger, safe, and on the flight refuel panel set internal all and fin off as required. Tank inter and fuel crossfeed close, sequence switch to normal. Then it would be time to put the probe out, check the ready light was illuminated, set the aircraft lights for comfort, and put the probe light on so the nav can see it at night. From astern the hose, the fighter would move up to a waiting position, about 10 to 15 feet behind the basket. Once cleared for contact, with gentle manoeuvres, the idea was to approach at a walking pace, flying up the line of the hose, using the markings under the pod or on the tanker fuselage as a guide. It was important not to try to line the basket up with the probe, or to watch the basket's behaviour. As the aircraft approached the drogue, the bow wave created by the nose of the fighter was going to move the basket, so the usual line-up was with the basket closer and lower than might look right, expecting it to move into the correct position as the aircraft closed. The nav could be helpful, with useful comments like What the hell are you doing now? Or You know there's a beer on this but usually they just called the miss position, so that you could adjust your line-up next time. As the probe entered the basket, a spark of static electricity might flash across, but then the spokes were guided into the centre and the tip of the probe would make a comforting clunk as a good contact was made. A little more power would be needed to push the weight of the hose up into the pod where the hydraulically powered drum unit, the Hoodoo, HDU, would take up the slack, and after pushing about ten feet in, the green light would come on and the tanker would call, Fuel Flows. Now it was just a matter of keeping position. As the aircraft became heavier, it would take more power to stay in contact. If you started to drop back and didn't arrest it quickly, the drum brake might come on, immediately pulling the basket free from the probe, and the tanker guys would have to move you away while they cycled the hose in and out again before you could finish the refuel. In the tornado, with stores underneath, particularly if the tanker was higher than was optimum for poor Mother Riley's cardboard aeroplane, it was fairly common to run out of puff and reach maximum dry power. Now the trick was to inch one engine into minimum burner and control your fore-and-aft position with the other one. 
do it ham-fistedly, and it was easy to either overcook the amount of burner and start pushing the hose in too far, or pull the other engine back too far and drop out of contact. Either was a bit of a nightmare, and in burner you were consuming fuel almost as fast as it was coming in. When complete and cleared astern, it was just a matter of gently drawing away without putting the hoodoo brake on until, when at full extension, the hose would stop and the probe would simply disengage. If you did it well, and came away down the natural line of the hose, the basket would just sit there, but if you came away too high, too low, or off to one side, it would fly around to its normal position, and could easily give you a whack on the way. Now it was just a matter of moving to the right, gathering all your formation together, and then departing the tanker, usually with 15 feet of flaming afterburner, just to demonstrate who was the master race and that there was fuel to be burned. There were a few things that might go wrong, of course. A bit of over-controlling as the basket came close, and it was easy to clobber the end of the hose with the airframe. I've seen it do complete circuits around a fuselage, whacking all sorts of expensive stuff on the way, and giving the canopy a lovely set of scratches. There are plenty of pilots who've managed to stick it on the end of the radome, or suck it down an engine intake. The first is just embarrassing, but the second can stall the engine. A hose pushed up too fast can create a whip effect, where the bend of the hose will travel up to the hoodoo, and then, like a loop and a skipping rope, come back down to the receiver. If the unfortunate pilot hasn't realised what's happening in time and pulled out, the hose can flick the end of his probe right off. It has a weak link designed into it just below the tip. The same result is common if the tanker crew haven't primed the hose properly by filling it full of fuel. When primed, the hose is comfortably stable. When empty, it can whip around like an angry cat's tail. Stabbing at the basket or coming in too fast will often poke your probe right through the spokes. It wrecks the basket, but more expensive is the engine destruction that might occur should any bits of metal come loose and disappear down an intake. The F-18's probe was fairly close to sensitive angle of attack and pitot probes. I once grandly attempted to coach my squadron mates through the basics, and then demonstrated how not to do it by bending a pitot probe. When I left Australia to come home, 77, my beloved F-18 squadron, presented me with that bent probe on a plaque, bearing the words, To the potent POM. We hope you have better luck getting it in at home. KC-135 boom-equipped tankers can be converted to a probe and drogue system using a special adapter unit. In this configuration, the tanker retains its articulated boom but has a short hose and drogue attached to the end of it instead of the usual nozzle. This arrangement has no play since the boom is in a fixed position and the hose is only a few feet long. Having made contact, the receiver has to move forward and to one side to bend the little hose into an S-shape. Taking up this position turns valves on to allow the fuel to flow, but there's very little room for error, 
and it's an unforgiving system that has broken many a probe off. Of course, not all problems are the receiver's fault. Hoses fail or snap, which can leave an embarrassingly long appendage dangling below and complicating the landing a little. There are pilots to admire, the ones who can perform this little aerial refuelling trick, aren't the fighter jocks but the heavy boys, who have to manhandle many tons of aircraft to within feet of another equally huge flying machine. Their job is hampered by flying controls that aren't particularly well suited to formation flying and their aircraft carry huge amounts of inertia that takes true skill to master. Helicopter pilots also require great skill to cope with the long probe needed to safely approach a refuelling hose which amplifies every little movement they make. They are also well aware that the safety margins for them are small as the space between their whirling rotor blades of death and the basket is far from large and should the worst happen, they aren't equipped with ejector seats. Of course, not every air-to-air refuelling mission goes according to plan and some, sadly, end in tragedy. We recently heard of an F-18 pilot who had a mid-air collision with his C-130 tanker off the coast of Japan. The Hornet pilot lost situational awareness whilst trying to perform an unexpected formation change at night and struck the Hercules, damaging it sufficiently for it to lose control and plummet into the sea on fire, killing all five on board. The Hornet crew of two ejected, but only one was recovered alive. Luckily, this is a very rare occurrence, but it brings to mind a similar accident that occurred whilst I was serving. It was back in 1975 when a converted V-bomber tanker, a Handley Page Victor K-1A from 57 Squadron at Marham, was refuelling a pair of buccaneers from the conversion unit at Honington. One of the buccaneer pilots was carrying out a check flight and was attempting to make contact with the left side wing hose. He drove his bomber in too fast and overtook the basket, which bumped its way down the side of his canopy and along the spine of his aircraft. The pilot tried to back off, but in doing so allowed his aircraft to rise above the victor's wing, and whether it was his mishandling or turbulence from the wing, as he dropped back he clipped the tea-tail of the tanker. For a moment nothing happened, but then the tailplane began to visibly oscillate. The other buccaneer pilot told the Victor crew to abandon their aircraft, but before they could, the tailplane party company and the big tanker violently nosed over into a dive. Inside the little cabin of the Victor, the crew would have been subjected to enormous negative G-loads, and only the two pilots were equipped with ejector seats. The rear crew of three would have needed to manually don parachutes and abandon through an escape hatch. With the forces that they were being subjected to, they had no chance at all. As the aircraft pitched beyond the vertical, the captain, Keith Hanscom, managed to get a couple of fingers around the seat pan firing handle and he ejected, but his co-pilot, along with the rest of the crew, died when the loads on the aircraft tore it apart. 
in the cold sea, Hanscom was lucky to survive. It took some time for him to be found, and although he was wearing an immersion suit to protect him from the cold water beneath, he wasn't dressed properly. When found, he was unconscious and in severe hypothermia. The medics were amazed that he had survived. In a link to the F-18 accident I just described, it appears that poor supervision and preparation may well have been a contributing factor in this tragic accident. One of the most famous air-to-air refuelling accidents occurred with a boom system that is used by the US Air Force. In 1966, a B-52 was tanking from a KC-135 over the Mediterranean Sea. The pilot recalled, We came in behind the tanker, and we were a little bit fast, and we started to overrun them a little bit. There's a procedure they have in refueling where if the boom operator feels that you're getting too close and it's a dangerous situation, he'll call, break away, break away, break away. There was no call for a break away, so we didn't see anything dangerous about the situation. But all of a sudden, all hell seemed to break loose. The planes collided, with the nozzle of the refueling boom piercing the top of the B-52 fuselage, breaking a longer run and covering it with jet fuel. There was an explosion that was witnessed by a second B-52 about a mile away. The left wing failed and the bomber crashed. All four crew members on the tanker and four of the seven-man crew aboard the B-52 were killed. What makes the accident particularly memorable was that the bomber was carrying four live Mark 28 thermonuclear hydrogen bombs as part of Operation Chrome Dome. Three of the bombs came down in Andalusia, Spain, and were found within 24 hours. In two of them, the conventional explosives that they contained, in addition to the nuclear core, had detonated, spreading radioactive contamination around, but luckily not initiating a nuclear explosion. The fourth weapon had entered the sea, and after a search that lasted 80 days, it was eventually found and recovered from a depth of 2,900 feet, that's 880 meters. The recovery of this weapon by the Navy is in itself a remarkable story. There are other remarkable air-to-air refueling stories, such as the attack on Stanley Airfield during the Falklands War that I covered in my previous tale, Black Bucks Over the Atlantic. But I'm going to leave you with one final amazing fact. The SR-71 Blackbird made frequent use of air-to-air refueling. Indeed, many of its missions were impossible to conduct without tanker support. The amazing spy plane didn't have great takeoff performance, which sometimes required it to take off with less than full tanks. Once airborne, it would accelerate to high supersonic speed to heat up the airframe and close all the expansion gaps it had when cold, sealing the leaky fuel tanks. Then on LTTR missions at launch to tanker rendezvous, it would be topped up with its unique JP-7 fuel and head off to do its special secret thing at over Mach 3.
Wow, you learn so many things when you listen to these wonderful plain tales. <laughs> and you know what I learned? The most important lesson? I need to listen to these things before I play them on the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's see, where who should I start with as far as po- apologies? Uh, the fine air traffic controllers out there that are listening. I do apologize for that. Well, um, you, know, then you see, I was talking about fighter controllers, different oh, breed. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was uh that was an interesting one, Nick. You're very creative. Well, thank you. And uh yeah, I, I must uh give my thanks to uh Halal for uh being the voice of the B fifty two crew member. So he did yeah, a great we job. Trying, we were trying yeah. to guess who that was. <laughs> exactly. And we had no idea. No, yeah, he, he did a great job of disguising his uh, usual drool. So uh, thanks very much indeed, Halal. Thanks, Halal. Yeah. All right. Well, that was uh, that was awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Um, and now you know as much about air refueling as I do. <laughs> you know, I was thinking when you were talking about a recent uh, incident, wasn't it like just the uh, toward the end of last year, the uh, Marine Corps C-130 and the uh, Navy F-18, or maybe it was a Marine Corps F-18 as well. There was some kind of a – and took out the C-130. That was also an air refueling incident, wasn't it? Very That's recent. That's the one I mentioned, yeah. Oh, I, it is. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I'll this out. That closely. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah. Go back and listen again, Jay. I thought you were talking <laughs> about a – I thought you said it was a KC-135. Maybe that was another one you were talking about? That was the end one. I did. I did three incidents. Oh, one I see. Was, I must have uh, been one thirty. Uh, the other was the Victor, oh. and then the uh, Casey one. Oh, I think I must have blacked out in the middle of it. Sorry, <laughs> don't blame you. Well, I, I fired Jeff in the middle of it, so yeah, he, he did. didn't miss the There are some. Version. There are some things go administrative things going on in the yes, middle of it. HR was uh, wielding the big stick. <laughs> so we, we brought him back though. I went black good. for uh, a short period of time, but they 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 talked to me uh, off the ledge, and I came yeah. back. <laughs> especially when they started figuring out that they were going to have to do all this on their own we have no idea what we're doing <laughs> yeah. you know what i failed to mention and i do apologize for this uh steph is yeah. if you're watching her on video you'll notice that she's not in her normal home studio but somewhere else for some reason so tell us what's going on i am in new york city um so there's was, there was supposed to be a race tomorrow, um, the New York City Half Marathon, which is actually quite a big event. Um, one of their half marathons put on by the New York City or the uh, New York Roadrunners, I should say. Um, but due to coronavirus, just like everything else, it has been canceled. Um, not even postponed this race, um, just canceled because not as big as some of the other big major marathons. <clears throat> Sorry, I don't know why my voice is scratchy all of a sudden. Certainly, it's the beginning of the illness, I'm sure. Mm. No, I think it's actually just this drink I've been drinking. Um, so, um, you know, there were a couple of options. I could have canceled the trip and just stayed home this weekend. Uh, but I had already made plans to meet up with some people. So today I'm meeting up with one of my running friends. We're going to go share some miles through Central Park in a little bit. Looks like a great day for it. It's going to be mid-50s. It's sunny out the window. Um, so really looking forward to that. Don't worry, we'll do our our part to do some social distancing Um and then tomorrow, um, we're still planning on it. I think it's going to be a smaller event than than originally planned, which is is fine. We're going to do a, a meet up with Tanya and um, and Philip and um, some of the other other folks that were planning on coming have decided that it's perhaps best because of um, uh, yeah, just with everything that's going on that they they don't show up. But I think there'll be a small quorum of us still to to get together and chat and hang out and talk some aviation stuff for a while. So that'll be fun. And then I'm going back home. 
a surprisingly full, full-ish flight up to New York City, JFK last night. Uh, it was an Air- Airbus A321, so however many people that holds, 200. Close to 200, uh, depending on yeah, the two, airline configuration. Yeah, somewhere in the 200 range. We had, uh, there were supposed to be 95 passengers on board. So, you know, close to, close to half full. That's good. Yeah. We'll yeah, see, my uh, flights were um, going to, from Atlanta to Wichita, uh, and this time of year it may have been kind of light load anyway, but uh, I'd mm-hmm. say probably about one third to one half full. And then on the way back to Atlanta, um, it was uh, much more, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, packed to the gills like, as it is quite often. But um, I, I did notice a little bit of uh, drop off on uh, the passenger loads this this past week, but not really too bad. Yeah, I think a lot of the uh, domestic flights are still relatively full. We'll see how that changes over the next 10 to 14 days. I went to Raleigh-Durham. Mm-hmm. 19 people on the airplane. Oh, ouch. Yeah, that's not, yeah. yeah. That's kind of more what I was expecting, actually. But um, the airport in Charlotte was very, very full last night. I was doing what I could to not be right on top of people and kind of keep my distance and stay away from people who appeared to be sick in any way, shape, or form, but didn't really see anyone coughing, sneezing, anything. No, everyone was doing a good job not touching their face, as Nick and Dana are doing right at the moment. Um, I cannot stop touching my face. I know. It's, it's like, the worst. As I soon didn't as someone tells you how not much, to touch your face. Doesn't, like, I didn't realize how much I do that until... Yeah. Every, you know, everyone does. Yeah. Everyone does. It's really screwed up my... Um, just the flow of things <coughs> in my, my own office. Right. Usually I walk in the room, I grab some hand sanitizer, and then I shake the hand of whoever I'm, you know, the patient I'm seeing. And so I walk in the room, grand has sanitizer, and then I'm like, mm, I'll just keep my hands to myself here. <laughs> Hi, how are you? I'm your doctor. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it seems strange. That's all. But yeah. Yeah. Just it. kick each other's feet. That works. Or elbow to elbow. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> just found a new way of not touching his face. Yeah. It's, it's a little awkward, but uh, you know, it does a trick. <laughs> yep. It also helps like to breathing. Sc- it also helps screen any of those little droplets that might be flying out of my mouth. Yes, he <laughs> exactly. stuck a tissue up his nose, everybody. If yeah, you're not if you're, watching if you're the video, listening, it's a very flattering look for yes, Jeff. Yes, it is. It, it obscures the mustache, though. So, oh, oh well. Uh, yeah, we I'll can't have, to, have that. I'll have to get a transparent clean Kleenex or yep. facial tissue. Well, I'm assuming beards and mustaches are actually very good because they yeah. like trap stuff before it gets near. Uh, yeah, yeah, your nose. I would think so, but who knows? We're not doctors. Who knows your nose? And yeah. I, I don't know anything about it because I just do spines. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> not usually a lot of mustaches down that way. Not, not yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully not. not. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and well, with that, <laughs> moving on. To I was just going to say items here. We're at an hour now, so uh, I know. Uh, looks like. Um, hey, if you're listening to the show after the fact. Um, w- we couldn't remember exactly how long our part one was, so we're guessing that we're getting close to the three-hour mark right now. Uh, but and we do apologize if we go over the three-hour mark. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and cover uh, at least one or two more items of feedback, if you don't mind. Um, and uh, I asked for my crew's help in picking which one to do. And that was your first mistake. Yeah, I got a lot of suggestions and none of them matched. Yeah, we're good at help with that. Yeah, you really helped me with that. <laughs> so let's do this one quick, quickly. Uh, Darren sent this in and he um, is, uh, he he just joined. Uh, or 16. 
Yeah, Darren. 16. I'm oh, sorry. I heard Aaron. I'm sorry, I'm sorry Darren, 16. Um, he was one of those that was mentioned during the Coffee Fund um, segment. He is a new Coffee Fund club member or coffee, whatever. <laughs> he he uh, made a nice contribution to the Coffee Fund. And he says, hey, guys, thought I'd make a donation to the Coffee Fund and share my good news in passing my IFR check ride. Yay! 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 And he says, love the show from a bloke born in Blighty, but living in Massachusetts. And again, his name, Darren Foley. Yeah. So we, uh, some would uh, say that's probably the most difficult of the check rides, you think? at least before ATP. I don't know. But yeah. I mean, I would, I would, CFI is probably the CFI. Yeah. yeah that, that's so. the one. Hmm. But I, re- I did talk to, you know, reach out to Darren. He's actually flying at the same airfield at the same FBO, uh, actually uh, aircraft operator, uh, rental place, CFI, learning, flight school, whatever you want to call it, uh, same place I was. So when, oh, when I was oh the famous flight. CFI learning flight school. Yep. Oh, <laughs> good. Oh. Did, did, did he ask about the legacy uh, CFI, Dana? Uh, no, they didn't. They certainly didn't know who I was. <laughs> Why would that? Haven't you carved your name on the uh, sign-in desk there? Uh, yeah, I did, with blood. Yeah. Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> uh, let's see. Looking through here. Um, and, and several of these we've, we've already kind of, you know, put off into the next show. So uh, one of those is uh, from Luke. I'm going to go ahead and quickly cover this one. Um, he sent us some audio feedback, so let's listen to what Luke has to say. Hello, APG crew. It's Luke from Australia. Uh, so last episode, a very unique airplane was mentioned. Uh, I believe it was selected as perhaps uh, a type that Captain Jeff would like the chance to fly, uh, the six-engined Antonov 225. Um, a very unique airplane because of its size, but also very unique because... Uh, only ever one of them were built, um, originally designed to carry the Russian space shuttle. Um, a second example was almost completed, um, also with six engines, uh, but with a, a more traditional tail than what you see on the current Antonov 225, the H tail. This one was just going to have a standard um, a tail that you see, perhaps similar to you know a 747. Um, there are some photos of this aeroplane around on the internet. If you Google search second Antonov 225, you'll certainly see some photos of that aeroplane. Um, the engines used on the Antonov 225, they, they are the exact same engines that are used on the more common Antonov 124, and I'll try to pronounce it, the Lotrav D18T. Um, I've watched many videos of this aeroplane departing, and... A very unique operating procedure for the Antonov 124 and also the 225 is that it requires at least four to five minutes in the lineup position um, to slowly spool up the engines. Um, I've provided an example of this um, aeroplane departing Perth, uh, a YouTube link where the pilot clearly requests time on the runway to warm up the engines. Um, while this is taking place, you can see that the flaps are being lowered for takeoff and you can usually see the elevators rocking around while, while the power is slowly increased. Um, I've done some research on this and I'm yet to find a definitive answer, but many comments have noted that these engines require a lot of babying, I guess you could say, and they, they need to be slowly advanced to take off power. 
Um, now, also a few shows ago, there was a mention of landing on the nose wheel first or wheelbarrowing, wheelbarrowing as it was described. And how could you describe wheelbarrowing and link the Antonov 124 in the same sort of discussion? Well, it's pretty hard to convince anyone that that would happen. And well, I'd like to share a video uh, of the Australian International Air Show way back in 1992. Um, the introduction starts at around the 59 minute mark and the unbelievable landing is around the 102 minute and 50 second mark. So um, I think this video has only been on YouTube for a couple of months and um, when I heard you, when I heard that um, the discussion of wheelbarrowing was mentioned a few shows ago, I was um, I wanted to give some feedback because I remember watching this on TV and, uh, and, and lo and behold, the, the video is now up on YouTube. So I, I really hope you enjoy that. Um, thanks again for all the efforts for all you do for the show. It's really, uh, really entertaining and uh, take care. Thank you. Thank you, Luke, for sending in the audio feedback. And he gave us a couple of uh, YouTube video links that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, the first, uh, the takeoff of the uh, Antonov 225. And uh, those engines talking about babying, man, that's a uh, pretty incredible having the amount of time that you have to take. Yeah, to haven't they heard of Fadec? Apparently not. Apparently I guess this thing not. was built before those kind of systems. Um, and then, uh, as you mentioned toward the end, the uh, the wheelbarrowing uh, maneuver of this thing landing. It looks like they purposely came in and landed nose wheels first. I think there are four nose wheels on this thing. Um, and I think this is the, uh, the Antonov 124, the smaller of the two um, Antonovs that he uh, was talking about. And apparently that thing is awfully beefy, that nose gear structure. Robust. Uh, very robust. Yes. Thank Actually, you. that, that Asia 1992 a YouTube video starts with something that's uh, not quite what we're talking about now, but all about the plane tail. It's uh, a pair of uh, A4 Skyhawks doing uh, formation aerobatics whilst buddy-buddy refueling, which is a trick that the uh, display team, the Kiwi display team, used to do. Hmm. They used to, uh, uh, the leader would trail a hose, and then the number four aircraft in a box four would make contact, and then they'd barrel roll the whole formation with this bloke in contact. Absolutely brilliant maneuver. Wow, and great way to tie that into the uh, plane tail. That's cool. Yeah, so I don't think Luke realized uh, how no. clever that bit of film was going to be. I think it's fantastic. Very, very nice. Okay, uh, moving on. Um, I'm going to put off uh, Tim. <laughs> Sorry, Tim, to put you off. Mm -hmm. uh, item seven, because I think we that can... That might be a good one for Tuesday. Yeah, that's a good one to kind of have a good discussion how how we all met. Because many of you are new to the show and aren't aware of the uh, the history of uh, of the show and how all of us came to know each other and be part of this wonderful thing. So we'll, we'll save that one. Um, let's see. Any more uh, suggestions from... I thought 10 was kind of short and cute. Okay. Uh, Justin um, sent this to us. Um, he says, Hi, APG crew. Frankfurt-based cargo guy here. I previously lived in Midtown in the ATL, Atlanta. I started listening to your podcast a couple of months ago, but only after moving back to Germany. So, missed quite a few options for meetups. I'm currently on my way to see my granny in Arkansas. My plan was to fly from Frankfurt via Dusseldorf, Miami, 
Tampa, Destin, Memphis to Harrison, Arkansas. When I, that's a round, Arkansas <laughs> or Arkansas. Yes. For, for Nick, yeah. um, that's a kind of a roundabout kind of itinerary, isn't it? Um, anyway, when a thunderstorm hit Destin, one of the flights got delayed and messed up my itinerary. Somehow, he was destined to be delayed. <laughs> apparently so. Oh, bam. Where's my <laughs> rim shot? Come on, Sorry. Jeffrey. Dang it. Uh, uh, right there. I was on it. <laughs> right on it. <laughs> yeah, real mic drop moment. I think you might need to fix that in post. <laughs> nah. Nah. <laughs> it's funnier this way. <laughs> okay. Um, somehow the pilots decided they didn't want to cross a 70-mile storm cluster in a Cessna caravan. <laughs> that was good decision-making. <laughs> uh, so I caught an Acme flight to Atlanta and then on to Springfield, which is not in Arkansas, but right above Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, see, see the way I did that? Yeah, Anywho, uh, the reason why I'm actually writing is that I think I've solved the mystery what airline Acme really is. Here are the clues. Major legacy airline based in Atlanta operates DC-9 offsprings. Considering all that, I think you're flying for AirTran. Don't worry, I won't tell anyone. Your secret is safe with me. All the best from Arkansas, Arkansas. Justin Beaverhausen. Thank you, Justin. Yeah. Beaverhausen. <laughs> Wait a minute. Yeah, keep going. Keep talking. Uh, where is it? No, I can't find it. Dang it. <laughs> nice beaver. Thank you. I just had it stuffed. So, uh, Artran, the uh, Airtran. Airtran. Okay, they're they're a, a well-known outfit out there. Yeah. Well, they were. Just don't talk about when, it. Yeah, they yeah. were. We'll just say that. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were big in Atlanta, and Southwest bought them. Yep. Oh, okay. They were operating 717s. Mm-hmm. And then Southwest oh. said, we're going to go ahead and keep those things. And then shortly thereafter, they said, eh, never mind. No, we just like our Boeing 737s. We'll get rid of them. And maybe some airline out there like Acme will want our Boeing 717s. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. happened. So, so yeah, oh, there's a definite relationship there. Anyway. Yes. Close, but no cigar, Justin. But of course he was, he had his uh, tongue firmly planted in his cheek. Yes. Um, shall we keep going? Sure. One more. Okay. One more. Yep. Which one? Uh, How about Pilot Pride 13 from Vernon? Pilot Pride. Okay. Here we go. From Vernon Tryon, retired CFI, et cetera, et cetera. Lots of different things. Air traffic controller, wasn't it as well? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and we've, uh, um, I think, I don't know if all of us have met Vernon, but a couple of us have at least. Yeah, I have as well. Met him in England. I met him in Maine with uh, Micah and, uh, yeah, Micah and uh, Max. It's the real England, not the new England. Yes, we were in the new England. Uh, hi, gang. Dr. Steph might get a kick out of this. I haven't seen any feedback for a while. No, I take that back. I haven't sent any feedback for a while. I didn't even send a happy birthday to Captain Jeff in December. Oh, I noticed that, Vernon. Uh, not just, I'm just kidding. But if that's any consolation, I meant to. I do keep up with the podcast. Keep cranking them out. 
What's and the story about the road to hell? What's it paved with? <laughs> paved with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> You're doomed, Vernon. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, Vernon, to inform you. That's right, I'll, I'll be right there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> For all I'll the good there. intentions I have in my life that never get acted upon. Yeah. Anyway, um, and one of those intentions is stuff to actually be nice to me sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm working on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. She's nice to me. Okay, as one, uh, this is from. Um, gcfl.net not sure what that is but anyway uh, the title of this is pilot pride as one of relatively few female airline pilots i've often been mistaken for a flight attendant ticket agent or even a snack bar employee <laughs> occasionally people will see me in uniform and ask if i'm a quote unquote real pilot still others congratulate me for making it in a male-dominated field one day I was in the restroom before a flight. I was at the sink, brushing my teeth, when a woman walked through the door and looked over at me. And she said, My sister would be so proud of you, she remarked. I figured her sister must also be in the airline business, so I smiled and asked why. The woman replied, She's a dentist. <laughs> That's good. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, just a brief aside on that. Um, certainly I'm a part of a lot of different, um, female pilot groups on social medias and things like that. And it's, it, it is something that happens quite frequently to female pilots because, um, we still only make up like 6% of all the, the pilots in the U S or something like that. And then, you know, that number actually, it varies across different airlines for those who are professional pilots. So, uh, um, you know, not, not, um, uh, it's still not the most common thing to see a, a, female pilot on your flight. Although it, I think it's becoming more and more common, especially at the regional level, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, those, those poor ladies all the time and, and not just by, they're not just being mistaken for flight attendants by passengers or, or folks who might not know anything. Oftentimes it's gate agents, um, other crew members. There's some pretty funny and sometimes frankly sad stories out there. Uh, but anyway, absolutely. But some um, some good ones, too, because uh, it was International Women's Day uh, quite recently. And Air Canada did a flight where they had the entire crew on the aircraft, mm-hmm. were all women. But not only that, every single controller the aircraft spoke to on its flight from Edmonton to somewhere else. Uh, it might have been Toronto, actually, uh, was uh, a woman controller as well. So I think well done to them yeah. for managing to coordinate that. Great to see more ladies in our profession. Absolutely. And, I, um, you know, I see a lot of ladies um, doing flight training, so that's great. Um, I think things are going to change going forward. I don't think we'll I think it'd be a long time before it's ever 50, 50. Um, but you know, if you look another, so in my profession in medicine, um, my med school class was 50, 50 cool. guys, guys and gals. So it's yeah. not, um, you know, things may change there. I'm not sure what, um, keeps more ladies from, from pursuing careers in aviation. I think there's probably a lot of factors. Um, some probably very valid. So I don't think that's necessarily something that we need to be saying, Oh, you, you know, we definitely need to be encouraging more ladies um i think the ones who are interested in it will will take it up and do it and i don't think there's very many barriers to them doing that anymore so no in fact most airlines would love to have more Mm -hmm. because uh you know i think it represents uh the um the way the airline likes to be seen by the general public Mm -hmm. equality and it is encouraging what you said steph that uh the percentage is increasing 
much more significantly in the regional world, which is going to translate to the major airline world exactly, in, exactly. in the future. So. In fact, one of the last regional flights I took um, went to go see a uh, football football game in Green Bay with Dispatcher Mike back in December. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a regional flight from O'Hare up to Green Bay, so you know, a nice twenty minute long flight, not very long at all. But we had uh, female captain, female first officer, female jump seater, male flight attendant. It was great. <laughs> it was all upside down, right? <laughs> all all topsy turvy. So. Yeah. That's awesome. And it was, it was actually, I think it was Captain Steph or First Officer Steph. I forget. Yeah, Captain Lindsay, First Officer Steph. So Very good. good. Cool. All right. Well, we're going to end it with that last one. And we're going to move all the other ones that we have here in the feedback folder to uh, episode 417, which we're planning on recording on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, this Tuesday afternoon. And uh, we hope that you'll... Green beer ready. Yes, green beer. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, it's a feast day. I might oh. be able to drink green beer. Surely there's an exception. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I'm doing the best the best I can, all right? You can add that green food coloring to your, your wine? No. Gin? Gin. Oh, oh you, yeah. Could, you could yeah, you have green there gin. Wow. Drink it just straight, huh? Perfect. May, yeah, well, good soda water. Tonic water. <laughs> that may not be a good idea. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, um, let's uh, point everybody to our website, airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll find information about our crew and the community and um, the plane tales. Oh, and something we haven't mentioned in a while, and it's my fault for not mentioning it. Um, a lot of you out there are readers of books. I don't know if you guys remember what those things are. Books? but uh, Yeah, books. They're like uh, these things, and they have pages and stuff, like paper. And uh, we have, uh, of course, you know, most of the books that are listed in the APG library are probably available in electronic form. So if, uh, if you don't want to mess with the old fashioned book, you can get it on uh, an elect- in electronic form in many cases. Anyway, it's the APG library and Tiffany is our librarian. And so uh, check that out if you don't, uh, if, if you want to see something good to read and um, so much more. And we're also on social media. You need to follow us on social media because we put uh, notices out there when we're going to record a show and we try to put our notices for meetups and such out there. So make sure you uh, follow us. And how would we do that, uh, Steph? Yeah, there's a couple different places. So certainly for show announcements, live recordings, whatnot, you can head over to twitter.com. We're at APG Crew. All that information is there. Our individual Twitter information is pinned to the top of the page. Um you can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. In addition to those show announcements, all kinds of other articles, news, um, current events, things like that. And just general conversation amongst um, show listeners and other aviation minded folks happening there. We also have a Instagram account, which I'm mostly running and not doing a very good job of posting things to. Um, but some folks have uh, like that as their preferred social media platform. So certainly don't hesitate to reach out there. I do check it occasionally, and I promise I will get back to you eventually if you post something there or have a question or other comment. And we also have Slack. Yes, with the Instagram thing, you know, uh, you're doing a much better job than anybody else here on the crew is with it. So, <laughs> I, I don't you... know if that, that's saying a lot. <laughs> okay, so you said Slack, and let's see if we can. Oh no! Hello, hello. It's time for the the Slack promo. Can you get me a roll of toilet paper? Nope, we're all out. <laughs> 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 
APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for the Slack thing and also your contribution to this uh, week's plain tale. Yes, very good. Uh, there were others that sent in an effort, but uh, Hillel was the winner. That's uh, Hillel washing his hands. Thank you. Was that 20 seconds? Did we time him? Is he um, washing his hands in the toilet? Yeah, it was, it was only 11 <laughs> seconds, Steph, so we need to talk to Hillel about that. Yeah. And do you use the basin next time? Yeah, please. <laughs> and uh, also a, a big shout out again to our producer director, Miss Liz Piper in hey. Toronto. Hey. Thank you, Liz. Fantastic job. Yes, a lot of uh, hard work going on behind the scenes. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talons, Douglas. Here's y'all. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Hope you're all still alive. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly over